Hi, my name is Anouk Fussel. I'm co-director of Turbo Kid and Summer of 84. And you're listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 154. On Horror Movie Podcast, what we bring you is in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Wolfman Josh, and this place is... What's the opposite of a miracle, guys? <laughs> yes. Welcome. It is a miracle. It's a miracle we're still here. 154 episodes and going strong, right, guys? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something. That's right. We want to thank everybody who is still listening to Horror Movie Podcast. I am always just heartened, if that's a word, and, and just kind of sometimes surprised, but like I will have people... <laughs> at my work who approach me and say, hey, I listen to that horror podcast. That's a cool show. They really like it. And I'm like, just so shocked. And then I'm like, oh, did you listen to the other one? And they're like, yeah, I turned that off. <laughs> <laughs> Poor movie podcast weekly. Go I ahead. saw somebody this week say that movie podcast weekly was the best movie podcast ever. So oh. uh, I know there, there's just there's no accounting for taste, but I do appreciate it. <laughs> so if this is your first time tuning into horror movie podcast, I just want to tell people we're just three dudes who love horror movies and we really don't think we're anything particularly special. Now, I can tell you that Dave and Josh are very special um, in their own ways. Like Dave is an encyclopedia of cinema history and Josh is a tremendous and insightful filmmaker and film critic. And you could say the film critic thing for Dave too, but I just want to tell you, we're just here to enjoy horror cinema with all of you. And that's the point of the Frankensteinian episode. We're just going to go through some movies we've been watching lately and bring you some reviews and we hope you enjoy it. Jay, if, if you don't mind, real quick, I just wanted to... to to mention we got a um a new review on itunes that i thought was actually pretty cool mm -hmm. i'm gonna read it i'm gonna try to do it justice okay the title is wicked good uh, it's a five-star review from a listener goes by the name of squatch country nice all right so here it goes hey guys <laughs> sasquatch here writing in from the pacific northwest just wanted to say love the podcast i stole a phone from some campers nearby and am binging from episode one on Real good reception on the mountaintop. Keep up the wicked good work. Sasquatch out. Ah, <laughs> I love that. I, like it. I thought that was pretty clever. So I don't know who that is, but uh, thank you. Well, I hope this isn't awkward. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably not uh, Sasquatch. I was going to say, Sasquatch is actually my my uh, Necromomicon's online persona. So that was my mom. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you for the review. That's really nice. 
Well, guys, let's get into this because I feel like it's been too long since we've done this. So uh, let's break it on down with the feature review of Slender Man from 2018. People don't just disappear. Okay, guys, so uh, just recently here we had Slender Man hit theaters. I believe it was August 10th, 2018. This is directed by Sylvain White. So let's. Let's just open up with talking a little bit about Slender Man. To be honest with you, I wasn't as familiar with this character, this monster. And I think a lot of what I learned initially about Slender Man, I heard from you, Josh. So won't you tell the listeners who might be unfamiliar with Slender Man and Creepypasta and all that, where, where this all comes from? I don't think any of us are really creepypasta guys. And that's, you know, I think that's people have maybe wondered why we haven't talked more about the different creepypasta horror properties that are out there and the excellent show on sci-fi that everyone's in love with. But yeah, it's just not um, something that any of us have gotten into, not because we don't like it, just, I don't know, circumstantial, I guess. But I haven't even, uh, uh, you know, explored it really at all to speak of, so... Right. Apologies. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the, there's obviously like the big creepypasta thing that people are super excited about right now is Channel Zero. Mm-hmm. Um, anthology series from Nika Antoska. <laughs> I think is how you pronounce his name mm-hmm. on the sci fi channel. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Slender Man, it's one of those things that started out as kind of an online. And again, if you're a huge Slender Man fan, I apologize for not nailing the details of this, but essentially as I understand it, it started out as kind of an online meme. Mm. Um, You know, it's kind of based on some Lovecraftian influences, but they, they had kind of Photoshopped uh, this guy, the slender man character into a bunch of old photographs. And those were floating around online. And then there became a folklore surrounding it. And it just kind of, took off online as i understand it i mm. mean that's that's really all i know about it right yeah exactly and and that was my understanding too now what what's interesting about that though is that um the way that it it did kind of seep into popular culture i mean even though i am not overly familiar with creepypasta i became familiar with slender man i mean you'd hear people talk about that and then like um, yeah. For example, well, it went viral. It was it was huge. Right. Huge. Yes. Yeah. That's not even overstating it. And, and like this, this is and again, I, we're probably frustrating people, but I can't help it. <laughs> but um, like, for example, my son loves um Minecraft. Right. And Minecraft has those characters. Um, I believe they're called Endermans. Right. Or something like that. And they actually have the the slender man <laughs> kind of shape to them and my son was very familiar with slender man and I, I was very surprised by that because he doesn't have a lot of online time to speak of so even even among like uh, you know my 10 year old son he apparently in you know fourth grade has learned a lot about slender man too so it's out there and that that's kind of intriguing dave what what's your experience so far with slender man um, to be honest, listening to you and Josh uh, talk about it. Okay. Okay. I had did not have, uh, I guess I've been living in a bubble or something cause I have not been very familiar with Slender Man. We're, we're too old for Reddit. 
you know that's the that's all there really is to it you know we we don't have enough time on our hands to go through tumblr and reddit and all of the other places where slender man kind of exploded so we just uh mm. we're, we're we're lucky if we get all of our movie watching in. well said right. yes that's true and i will say it seems to me i mean obviously this is a a modern monster it's a modern boogeyman of sorts and the reason we went into all this preface was to first kind of give a little bit of a disclaimer you know for where we're coming from but also i wanted to just tell people if you're interested in seeing slender man the film, the narrative film by Sylvain White, then I would recommend first watching a documentary. Now, I'll come back to the movie, but let me just highly recommend this documentary called Beware the Slender Man. Okay, now, my friend Wolfman Josh's documentary filmmaker. Josh, have you seen Beware the Slender Man? I have not. Again, I just have not delved into the creepypasta okay. world at all, really. Okay, now, this... This is a fascinating documentary, and I would not hesitate to recommend this to any horror fan. Um, I think this thing is just amazing. It's really troubling. Um, I know it's streaming on HBO Go. You can access it through HBO. You can access it um, on Amazon for like three bucks. But it's directed by Irene Taylor Brodsky, and it's this... A crime film about a true story of uh, two 12-year-old girls who uh, attempted to murder one of their friends in an attempt to appease Slenderman. And um, so this was like in the news. I mean, you can look up articles on this and it's, it's extremely troubling. And so what they do in this film is they introduce the audience to you know what Slenderman is. And so you get a really good sense of it in there. And I think the reason this makes a great appetizer or like, you know, a precursor to the narrative film is because they draw so many neat parallels about how Slenderman is really a boogeyman, a modern day boogeyman. And even they draw parallels to how it kind of corresponds with old, old legends like the Pied Piper and stuff like that. And it's, it's very unsettling, actually. I found this documentary extremely creepy. And then, of course, there's the crime itself. I mean, you hear uh, great details about what these, these girls did. And it's, um, it, it is horrifying. I mean, seriously, my blood ran cold watching this film. But it is a, it is a strong uh, documentary. I enjoyed it a lot. And if, it, if this means anything to you, Josh, I'm sure it will. Our, uh, our good buddy, Kill Bill Kill, William Rowan Jr., I know he's quite fond of the documentary as well, Beware the Slender okay. Man. So, so, yeah, if people, the first thing I'll say, I mean, especially if you appreciate Slender Man or if you have zero knowledge of Slender Man, you should definitely see the documentary first because I, I really think that would inform your viewing of the narrative film. Now, unfortunately, I saw them in reverse order, and I'm just going to admit up front, I think that my limited enjoyment of the film slender man especially given you know my my very little knowledge about that that monster character you know i think it inhibited me a little and had i seen the documentary first i'm pretty sure i would have enjoyed the film in the theater a lot more but um i will say let me just compliment sylvain white's film in that I feel like even though this was, it feels like a lower budget indie film. I mean, it's PG-13. What I did appreciate is there's some 
genuine artistic merit to it. I mean, I felt like um, the filmmakers were trying to give us uh, something that was made in um in an imaginative way. I mean, it, it's the usual kids are, you know, preyed upon or picked off one at a time. I mean, all that's pretty standard. A lot of the jump scares is, is just standard. But in the same way that like something like, it's not quite to this level, but you know the, the video game adaptation, uh, Silent Hill, that film? I, I love the look of that film. And I think that has tons of like production design, like a lot of value is on the screen in that film, even if it might not be the greatest horror film ever. I still like Silent Hill. Well, this isn't quite up to that level, but I do think that there's um, some really imaginative attempts in here. And some of it's a little distracting, to be honest. I mean, just a tiny bit like the camera movements and stuff. But but I, I feel like, you know, they were trying to give us something fresh so I will celebrate it and praise it for that. Uh, otherwise, I did I did find the film to be a little bit dull for me. Um, I don't think it's super scary at all, but there was one jump scare. Jump scares don't usually get me, but there's a jump scare in this film that I almost like jumped out of my seat. I couldn't believe how, how high I jumped. I don't know if everybody else is going to have that experience, but I did, and I was shocked. But otherwise, I was uh, mostly bored. But this is set in a um, small town in Massachusetts. You get this group of friends, and they start exploring this Slender Man thing on the internet. And the, basically, the lore is in this film that if you, you know, it, start messing around with this, if you attempt to to invite Slender Man into your life, and then you actually see him, then he's gonna prey upon you. And uh, so you you got this happening in these kids' life. And um, I also think the the creature design, like where the monster goes, and, and these are creature designs that you see on the internet too. I mean, it's not like it's not faithful to what you see, but some of it can can look a little silly, I think. Not silly funny, but just silly like, okay, that's not super scary. That looks like a giant weird like a spider or something. I, I, don't, I don't know, but... Anyways, I, I don't want to be too hard on this film because I, like I said, I appreciate where they were coming from and trying to make it. And I think if you watch the documentary first, you'll appreciate the film more. So what do you guys think so far? I mean, is that, yeah, I mean, is this something, this sound like something you'd be interested in checking out? I think the documentary, definitely. Yeah. You know, you've definitely sold me on that. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, I'll probably be interested at least to see what the uh, what the feature is like. Yeah. Okay. I think Channel Zero is probably the thing that I'm going to sit down with before the, any of these Slenderman things, just because I've heard such great things about Channel Zero. Um, I'm interested in Sylvain White because he started out as as a filmmaker. He did a really bad looking. I'll always know what you did last summer film um which was shot here in utah and i know a lot of people worked on it but man that just looked terrible from my memory and um but then he did two pretty big films stomp the yard and the losers which i think the losers is a pretty underrated movie actually mm -hmm. um and then he didn't make movies after that which is weird because i thought the losers was a hit but i i could definitely be wrong about that but. 
Yeah, and I and I saw Stomp the Yard. I remember that one. Yeah. Interesting it's dance film. Pretty flashy, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then but then he didn't make movies for a long time. He did a lot of television for the next eight years or so. Um CSI and Sleepy Hollow and Hawaii Five O and got the new MacGyver and that kind of stuff. But um this is his first movie back in well, almost ten years. So mm-hmm. you know, eight years, I guess. But um yeah, so I'm curious, I guess, to see how he's developed as a filmmaker, having done all that television work. But yeah, yeah. Do you do you think that's is that a difficult transition for people to go from television to the big screen, Josh? I mean, I would think that that way it would make you a better indie filmmaker because you have to work so quickly in television. Mm-hmm. I definitely. Um, the way you shoot a scene is different for television. I don't know how that, how much that's true anymore, but the old way of thinking about this was that television was a lot more close up because you're watching it in your home on a small screen. And, you know, the theater was more prone to widescreen and, and epic landscape kind of shots and, you know, the, the full scope of the cinema. And so, um, you know, those are like little differences, but um, gotcha. I think, you know, television has become so cinematic as of late. I don't know that those things hold true anymore. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll just, I'll just leave you all with this. I mean, if you, uh, certainly Slender Man fans will probably check out this film for me though, the, 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 nar- the narrative film is like a, a four out of 10, I mean, I could give it a, a low priority rental for people, but for me, it would be an avoid. So I'll tell you that oh, wow. if, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's not my cup of tea, uh, but the, the beware the slender man documentary, that's like an 8.5 out of 10. That's a strong rental recommendation. And I bet if you see that first, it would bump up the narrative film for sure. So anyway, that's, that's where I stand on those. And, uh, you know, let us know listeners what you think in the show notes for episode 154. Okay, Joshua, I've been dying to hear your uh, thoughts on The Endless. All right, The Endless is a 2018 film from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who have been jurors on our Horror Cinema Awards, for full disclosure. Um, They are probably best known as the filmmakers behind Spring, but uh, their their first film that kind of put them on, on the map was Resolution, and the endless takes place in the same universe as resolution. Although, um, and there is some crossover within the film, but they are, it's not a sequel and the films do not rely on each other in any way in terms mm-hmm. of narrative. Although I will say that I think your appreciation of the endless would be much greater if you were to watch, um, <laughs> resolution first. The problem with that is, is resolutions a really challenging film and probably most people are not going to enjoy it. So, wow. Um, yes. You know, I, I personally loved Resolution. Um, and I think The Endless is a little more accessible, but it's not as accessible as Spring was. Um, I think we can get from these guys generally is they're art house filmmakers. They make really intelligent movies that are pretty opaque. And, um, you know, I've heard the filmmakers talk about how their movies aren't um, kind of just left to your interpretation. I mean, they are to a large degree because they require a lot of work on the audience's end, 
but they they do say that their films are to be taken literally and that all of the answers are in the movie but it might take multiple viewings and a lot of work for you to like figure it out you know they Mm -hmm. they talk about their films as mysteries and that need to be decoded and so you know these are for true cinephiles and they're not for the general audiences and again most people are going to be frustrated uh, by these experiences yes can i can i speak to that i don't mean to interrupt you but absolutely go for it so this is this is what happened to me um I have first heard about The Endless probably from you and Kagan, right? From like Sundance or something. It seems like th- sure. that's where I learned about it first. And when I when I heard the premise, I'm like, oh my goodness, I cannot wait to see that film. And I think Kagan was even kind enough to and, and invite us to a screening in Salt Lake City and I couldn't make it when it was playing in our local art house theater. I was right. so bummed because I've been dying to see this. I mean, this is right up my alley I think from reading that and then everybody's told me oh well not everybody but I had people say oh you definitely need to watch the resolution first and and I had heard you guys talk about it in the past and I'm like okay well I you know I want to see resolution I just want to make yeah it's just called resolution sorry I said it wrong anyways um (laughs) so I watched that and and I like the premise of that too because I'm like okay that sounds like a good premise but then, as you said, Josh, <laughs> you nailed me the way you described that. It, it was it was very challenging to me and my tastes, and I was super irritated and frustrated. And I'm sad to report that because of that, I have not I have not been able to get myself to watch the endless because I had such a bad taste in my mouth from after resolution, and that bums me out because I love the premise to. Um, the endless. So you know me very well, Josh. Would you say, given all of this, that that I might enjoy the endless more? And if people out there are like me, they can skip resolution and go straight to the endless. It's mm, a good question. Um, <laughs> again, you don't need resolution to understand the endless. They don't rely on each other, but I think the endless is a much richer experience. If you've seen resolution recently, because there are so many connections, like they take place in the same universe and literally they take place like a hundred yards away from each other. (laughs) Wow. In like geography, you know? And so, um, yeah, you don't need to see resolution, but it's, it's a hard thing because this is a lot more accessible than resolution. It's not super accessible though, and I'm not sure this is your kind of movie, Jay. I, I really don't think you're you would be um, satisfied with your experience because this is, I would say, less accessible than Spring, um, which you know is is more Lovecraftian than mm-hmm. this, but is also kind of an art house movie. Yeah, I mean, also, I I liked Spring, but I was yeah. like, yeah, I, I would have liked a little more from Spring. So if it's if it's on the other side, if it's south of spring, then maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I would say this kind of um, this kind of splits the difference between resolution and spring. I would say. Gotcha. To some degree. Thank I you. I mean, I, I I think this is their best film, and I think um, it, you know, resolution is also like a really low budget movie, and it's found footage, and so a lot of the production values and stuff are impacted by it being a found footage film spring is like a really lush looking movie. And so is the endless. 
Yeah. And I would say this was their most kind of appealing uh, film for me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just do a premise since we haven't done that yet. Basically, the story is about these two brothers who are played by the directors, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And they are reprising roles that they had very small cameos in in the original film. Uh, or sorry, in resolution, I should say. <laughs> right. And um, they are two brothers who have escaped what they believed is a suicide cult. Uh, again, which makes a very, very tiny appearance in the in resolution. And um, the film takes place 10 years after that. So this is 10 years since they've escaped this cult. And they find that these people have not committed suicide, that they're still alive. And they're kind of given the opportunity to go back. And so they do, and they reconnect with some of uh, the people that they knew there and um, weird things start happening. And, you know, does, is there an ending? Uh, you know, <laughs> oh, okay. according to the filmmakers. Yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> evidence there. That's uh, that, you can find and you're going to have to really wrestle with this picture to um, make sense of all of it. But there are definite answers to not only this, I should say it does have a kind of sci-fi element to it. Um, You know, this ends up being, I think it's not spoiling anything to say kind of a UFO cult is what they refer to it in the first opening minutes of the movie. So there's a science fiction element to the film. Okay. Um, but yeah, look, this is not for everybody. Like you have to be someone who loves, uh, Sundance indie kind of films. You have to be someone who's totally fine with a film that doesn't wrap everything up neatly for you. Again, it's there, but it doesn't tell you the answers necessarily. Um, it offers them, but you have to kind of do the work uh, to find them yourself. And, uh, for me, it's the kind of movie I absolutely love, but I, it's also, I have a hard time recommending it to everybody. Gotcha. Dave, now Dave saw this too, right? Right, Doc? Uh, yes, I did. Actually, I just got done. Uh, I just finished it maybe about 45 minutes uh, before we started recording. Okay. what do you think of The Endless? I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I really did. I, I was uh, in tune with it um, from start to finish. I have not seen Resolution. Okay. So I sort of came to this without any knowledge, any prior knowledge of, you know, um, this universe uh, or even the filmmakers. But, yeah, I was wrapped right up in it. I, I liked um, the relationship between the two brothers, uh, the sort of tension there, and... There's there's something about you know when they when they go when they go back to this cult uh, there's uh, I like these I like movies that have a mystery to them and just sort of circle it and and reveal it slowly uh, just giving you enough to keep you interested and and wondering hey what you know where's this going uh, what's going on and and you know just throwing you enough clues that yeah there's something really strange going on here um. And then where it ultimately went, um, I I did really I liked that I, I liked that a lot. So I was in tune with I I I was right there with this movie from start to finish, and um, 
uh, yeah, I, I now I'm interested to see resolution. I mean, I might be going backwards, but I, I do want to check that out uh, just because this one was so intriguing to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So Dave, the characters um, toward the end of the film, where there's like some gasoline and some fire and things mm-hmm. like that. Those are the characters from resolution. Okay. Okay, I know what you're talking so, about. So All those right. characters make a, an, an appearance in this film, however brief, and uh, and these characters make even a uh, an even more brief appearance in resolution. They're not really a factor in that. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So no, but uh, but uh, everything, but like everything but about it is similar. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so interesting, and for a low budget, I you know I I guess the effects to me were just what they needed to be, you know? I don't think they were overly flashy, but they were, they were good enough. I, you know, they were, they were Mm -hmm. definitely good enough. Um, no, I, I was, uh, I was really impressed. I was really impressed with the film. So do you remember, this has been a few episodes ago. Um, we watched the film. Oh, it was, they remain. Okay. Yeah. We reviewed that in episode 142. Wow, I can't believe that was that far back. Yeah. So do you remember They Remain, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so how how does it compare to that? Because I'm I'm getting that sort of a sense. I would say this is this gives you a lot more than They Remain does. Okay. But it is similar for me, it's a similar type of film. Like I the things I like about They Remain, I also like about this. Gotcha. gotcha. Um this is more satisfying, but I think I don't know. Maybe Dave can say his opinion, but for me, I would say for a viewer like yourself, this would probably not be super satisfying. Okay. I'm with you. I I might, I think I agree with Josh. Um, Jay, I don't know if this is your kind of movie. Um, (laughs) I I think there's enough there that might interest you, but it, it is, uh, it is kind of a, you know, Josh was saying sort of an art house, uh, style of film. Um, so I can't say for sure. I would have a hard time recommending it to you also. Uh, but I don't know. It just worked for me. It, right. it just worked for me the, the whole way through. And, and I'm actually interested to see it again, to see if I can sort of spot some of the clues they had been talking about. This would have been a great movie for our cult episode, although it's not, it, it would have stood out quite a bit because it's very different from those other films this would have been an interesting inclusion because I think it would have opened up the conversation a little bit more nice. with regard to uh, how cults are used. in the world. Okay. Yeah. Well, interesting. Well, so what do you rate um, the endless Josh? And if you remember your rating of resolution, you know, throw that out. There. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So resolution, I don't remember exactly what my rating was, but it was in the seven to 7.5 range. And I think um, spring was also in the seven to seven point five range. This for me is a ten. Whoa! So I, you know, again, I can't recommend this to everybody. You have to be a patient viewer. You have to be okay with a movie that doesn't tie things up neatly. Uh, you know, I think if you're a fan of art house movies, this is one for you. Um, if you're not, just just avoid it. Like you know, there's no there's no harm no foul. I don't want people who hate art house movies to watch this and say, you're an idiot. Why do you, you know, 
you sh- you shouldn't like this movie. I-, I can like it, but you don't have to watch it. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> For for people who appreciate our house cinema, I think you're gonna absolutely love this. And uh, for yeah, for me it's a ten. I don't know if this is still in theaters. I don't think it is. Otherwise, I would say you know again, see it in your local art house theater. I know it's doing really well on iTunes right now. I believe it was just today or yesterday, as of this recording, it was the number one movie on iTunes. Mm-hmm. So Saw I would that. say support it on VOD. It's really inexpensive on Amazon. I think it's only 99 cents for a rental. Yeah, dollar. Yep. <laughs> so, um, I would buy the Blu-ray personally, but um, but yeah, I just spend a dollar to rent it as of today. Okay, that's great. And uh, what do you say, Dr. Shock? Uh, I'm going to say a nine with uh, the possibility of it. Maybe it'll go up on a second viewing, um, but I'm very enthusiastic about this film. And uh, like Josh, I say definitely support it. Um, I'll just, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on my obsession. So I have to admit, I own the Blu-ray. <laughs> um, uh, <yeah. laughs> nice. But, uh, and it is one I recommend if, if you are, like Josh was saying, if you are a fan of, of this style of film, um, you're going to want to pick it up. And I think you're going to want to watch it multiple times. Gotcha. And Dave, uh, do you happen to know if there are any special features or anything on the on the Blu-ray? Uh, there's a few, and I, I had started watching them and then ran out of time. There's a making of, deleted scenes, um, uh, something on the visual effects, um, a few things of when they, I guess, a trailer they had done for for Tribeca. Uh, so there's a few. Yeah, there's there's some uh, there's some decent spe- um, special features on it. That's excellent. So that film is called The Endless, and uh, Wolfman Josh gives it a 10 out of 10. He says he can't recommend it to everyone, but for Josh, it's a buy. So if you have Josh's sensibilities to buy, it sounds like Dr. Shock gave it a 9 out of 10, and it was a buy for you, obviously, because you purchased it. Um, yep. and, and, and for the new listeners, you could tell that on this podcast, I'm the simpleton, <laughs> and so... so you know, if you're a sophisticated viewer like these guys, then go for it. But yeah, I'm I'm a little more. What do you call? What do you call a guy like me, guys? Have you have you been able to? What what like to your face? Yeah, put a designation. <laughs> what designation do you? How I do mean, you? I think. Look, you're a guy who likes a really strong story and plot. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You like not, a briskly paced yeah. film. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I I would say if you want to put a negative spin on it, I would, or you know, or even I don't know, I, I would say you're a, a less patient viewer. Correct. That's than, correct. Than some, as you know, we as we talk about along the show, you're a clock watcher. You'll look at your yes. You'll look at your watch constantly during a film. I, I think like, this might this might be a film that you'd pull the stopwatch out, Jay, and we'd we'd get like <laughs> we'd get. It was this much time till we got to this scene. It was this much time till we got to that scene. It's a right. possibility. This is more of an hourglass kind of film. Okay. <laughs> no, that's good. to See, honestly, if I know something like that going in, like for whatever reason, I just thought resolution was a really straightforward type of situation. The premise sounded straightforward, but then when it started getting like, you know, trippy, like, like I was like, whoa, you know, you know, I wasn't expecting that. And I think that that is a limitation of of mine as a viewer i agree but i will say one thing in my defense to everybody out there who thinks i'm ridiculous the more something is set in reality 
the more I love it. Like I just love horror that could happen in everyday real life. That's my favorite stuff. So yeah, yeah. And, but you know what? There's, there's nothing here, to apologize for. I, no, no, definitely right. not. And as I'm sitting here, Jay, I, there are moments in this movie that I think you would appreciate. Mm-hmm. You know, cool. I, I I don't know if as a whole, but there are definitely moments within the movie that I think you would appreciate as a, as a horror fan, and and even with the style of movie that you like, uh, or that you're normally drawn to, I think there are moments in this that you would, you know, that that you'd say, oh wow, that was you know that was uh, that was interesting or that was really cool. I just don't know if the the total package. You was, know, from from start to finish. Was it scary to you guys? I mean, do you feel that the endless? It definitely, it definitely unsettling. was unsettling. Yeah, that's the best word. Like, uh, that's what I could say. It was a, definitely an unsettling film. Well, I do like unsettling. Hmm. Okay. Well, I am intrigued. Your review that when you two just hearing you discuss it, that has intrigued me further. So, hmm. Oh, okay. What about this? You you mentioned an alien type of element, UFO type of element. Um, That's the setup, but yeah, just oh, to let you, yeah. Okay, okay. Because I was just wondering, like, like Communion with Christopher Walken. I, I love that film. Yeah, it's the same ending as Communion, essentially. <laughs> just joking. Um, <laughs> what should no. we call this book about you? <laughs> just kidding. It's nothing like Communion. Um, okay. I don't know. I can't think of a good. Example of what to compare it to. I'm with you. That's uh, fine. It's it's, it's very uh, yeah. It's kind of tough. Okay. Yeah, I would say they remain is not far off. I think it has Lovecraftian elements for sure. It's got cult elements for sure. It even kicks off with a quote from Lovecraft. Oh, that's right. There you go. Okay. Well, I think I have a good sense of it. And and honestly, just to put this out there from a, a film criticism perspective, you know, I feel like you guys did your job on this show because I feel like I have a great sense of it and I and I feel like by now the listeners do too so you know we don't all have to agree I don't know why I feel particularly uh, humbled on this episode because I'm usually not humble at all but like yeah I do feel a real um I don't know a real sense of Hey, everybody's subjective artistic tastes are their own personal tastes yeah. and blah, blah, blah. You know, I feel that stronger than ever tonight. And I don't know why. I, I don't know why. I guess because when you're a creator of things, I just, you know what it might be, Josh? I have been listening more to uh, uh, Jeff Goldsmith's Q&A podcast, which he mm-hmm. he's uh, like, uh, for those who don't know, that's a great show. Um, a great audio podcast where he's like a screenwriting, he loves screenwriters and stuff, and he interviews people who have produced screenplays. It's always like popular films that are new in theaters, and you hear their story and where they're coming from. And and sometimes I will listen, because he'll be like interviewing a screenwriter for a movie that I, I thought was just terrible, like that I hated and I'm like, oh, wow, how's he going to pull this off? That's going to be awkward, you know? And then when I hear, like, how r- respectful he is, of course, and I don't feel like I'm disrespectful, but maybe people are offended sometimes. But when I hear how he discusses this artistic pursuit with these filmmakers, it, it really humbled me. And it's like they they do 
it's not like somebody tries to make a bad film and they, they always are coming from someplace. It's like, this was my idea. This is what I was going for. And yeah, once you do hear what they were going for, a lot of times you do have a, a you know, a little more um, understanding and even, I, I don't know what the word is, but uh, a greater tolerance or appreciation for what they've done. And so I think just listening to that so much recently has just made me reflect on myself as a critic. And I just, I mean, I, I still want to be like honest and about how I feel. the cinema, but yeah. it's, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, I still want to hate the cinema. No, no. I, I, yeah, I got to be honest about how I feel about a film, but I, I, sometimes I, I, it makes me feel a little bit bad, you know, like, I don't know. So I've been wrestling with that lately, but, you know, I'm still going to tell it, but I think people are still going to hate what I say. So, you know, I mean, I think we, you know, I just love movies and, and yeah, mm-hmm. and I think maybe having a little bit of an appreciation for the, the making of, you know, makes me even more um it's not even empathy necessarily it's just like an interest in the whole process i love seeing people experiment even if the outcome isn't great like i'm not i'm not only looking for like sheer entertainment and i or at least i think there are different ways that i'm entertained by stuff you know i'm like look dave is an interesting guy he's dr schlock on one hand on the other hand he (laughs) watches art house films and he's Mm-hmm. well versed in documentaries and everything else you know and i just think um he likes nudie pictures you yourself in this the more interesting all of it is. <laughs> right yeah i agree and and for me i i almost think and i'm sorry if this is annoying the listeners but i almost think i have a more narrow i like things that either like you know help me feel something like viscerally or or yeah. like you know enlarge my understanding of of the human experience or are strictly entertaining one way or the other, you know, like that's just fine. Cause I think that's 90% of movie watchers. Okay. To be honest. Well, that's, right. So yeah. I think that's a valuable voice. You know? Absolutely. Fair and, enough. and one of the things about the endless was I knew nothing going in. Mm-hmm. I hadn't watched any trailers. I, and like I said, I wasn't familiar with uh, resolution. So this was just like sort of diving in head first um, with no idea what I was getting into. And that part, uh, and that's to be surprised like I was, is just, that's what I love. That's what I love finding is, is just a movie that I know nothing about or, or, and it just sort of, you know, it sort of wows me. Okay. Yeah. Well, awesome. That's the endless. You can check it out for a dollar on Amazon prime. So go for it. All right, let's uh, talk about one that's uh, brand new in theaters. So here is our feature review of The Nun. I had a series of visions when I was younger. And after each one ended, the same thought would be stuck in my head. What did you see? I saw a nun. Wolfman Josh, you got to see The Nun, didn't you? That's correct, sir. Okay, would you uh, take us into it? Do the honors. So The Nun is a 2018 film directed by Corin Hardy, who brought us The Hollow a couple years ago, one of my favorite films of that year. This is from a screenplay by Gary Dalberman and a story by Gary Dalberman and James Wan. Uh, James Wan, of course, the director of... Uh, the Conjuring and The Conjuring Part Two, and this film takes place within the Conjuring universe. Uh, Gary Doberman was uh, 
one of the writers of Annabelle creation also within this universe, the writer of the original Annabelle and um, more recently it chapter one. So mm-hmm. he has some good credits uh, under his belt as well. The character of the nun, although there are a couple of different nuns in this movie, to yes. which the title of the film may pertain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scary, scariest one <laughs> first appeared in cinemas for The Conjuring 2, right? And it was a, an effective element of The Conjuring 2. I think it was one of the main things that people took away as really being creeped out by. Oh, my goodness. Movie. Yeah, I was and, scared, genuinely scared. And so as they've expanded this universe, they've said, let's take out so the Conjuring films are about the Warrens and um, played by Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. But as we've expanded the universe, it's like we've taken elements out of those movies and given them their own standalone film. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we saw that with Annabelle and Annabelle creation. Um, we're seeing that now with the nun in the conjuring this is a character that uh, kind of lives inside a painting that's a big aspect of the conjuring films is that there are vessels in which these evil spirits are housed and that's something that you know we can trace back to the bible with the pigs or anything else but um right you know with Annabelle to the doll with the nun at least within the conjuring too it's within a painting um, and side note, Josh, if I may, sorry, I don't, I don't want to derail you, but what you yeah. were talking about this occurring within the same universe, like from a marketing perspective, I think what's happening is it, it's a little bit like, um, you know, like the way they build the Marvel Cinematic Universe here, except I think they'll, they'll have the conjuring and then in the conjuring people were really freaked out by the little Annabelle sequence at the beginning. So then they did that spinoff version and then like, you know, in conjuring two, as you said, People took away that the nun was freaking scary. I thought it was. And then there's like, this is like, you get this spinoff prequel. And I think that's cool that they're doing that. I, I, I appreciate that. And from a marketing perspective, that's pretty smart, right? Because they're building out this universe. Right. Yeah, I think it's an interesting way to build out the universe. I personally am still most interested in stories about the Warrens. <laughs> because I think they're the most fun kind of like Ghostbusters in the seventies type of thing <laughs> that we have seen. Yeah. But I, I really enjoyed this. This is an interesting, also like a period piece that takes place even before uh, the Warren stories. So I think that's a fun element of this movie. It stars Tasia Formiga, which I loved, which is Vera Formiga's younger sister. Mm-hmm. And so I love that connection as well. Like I, I didn't know she was even in this movie when I went to see it. When she came on the screen, you know, my first initial thought was to the final girls, a movie that she's in that I love. But then instantly I was like, oh, yes, this is her little sister. How great. Like, I was kind of hoping that would connect in some way. This is the other interesting thing. Like, the Conjuring films are based, you know, supposedly or in part on real events that the Warrens had, you know, documented during their careers. But these other films, at least as I understand it, are kind of whole cloth fiction. And mm-hmm. so I would be curious to know if these other side stories are based on anything or if they're just, you know, complete works of fiction. Yeah. But, um, good question. Yeah. In this case, you have Taja Formiga playing sister Irene. You have Demian Bashir, who I mostly recognize as Bob from the hateful eight, but he's <laughs> been in 
uh, Machete Kills. He's he's been in a lot of stuff. He's a Mexican actor. I first saw in Steven Soderbergh's Che movies, but I, I like him. Um, he's he's a priest here who works for the Vatican. And what we have happen here is there's been a death at a creepy old castle, and um, you know this priest is called upon by the Vatican to go investigate. And he takes with him this young nun who has not yet taken her vows. And so she's a, a nun in training uh, played by Taja Formiga. And they, they set off to this creepy old, I believe Romanian castle. Mm-hmm. Um, they also meet up with a, a Frenchman or a French Canadian um, who was the one who discovered the death at the castle and the three of them venture into this old castle to fight evil. And so like from that element, this is like my favorite setup ever for <laughs> a horror movie. I love this Gothic setting. I, it's very reminiscent to me of a Dracula type of film. I love the religious iconography and you know, this exorcist kind of vibe where you're following the Catholic priest, all of this is just gets me going so much. It's like the, you know, my, my favorite thing, the thing I could have never hoped for. This is like what I would have chosen if I could have chosen what this movie would have been. Wow. And so I was very excited by the setup, um, you know, and it's, I think it's a good movie. I, I think it's unfortunate. Like this has been the most successful film in the conjuring franchise. Um, but also the lowest rated by critics and I think the audiences as well. And I think that's interesting because I think, um, I think the studios and the filmmakers tend to take the wrong message away from that. Uh, something like that. You know, I, the one that I always point to it's, which is stupid, but there's um, the success of meet the Fockers, like meet the parents is this incredible f- comedy film. My favorite. In fact, and then they make this terrible sequel which is far more successful than the original. Is it because meet the Fockers is a really good movie? No, it's because meet the parents is a really good movie and everyone wanted to go see the next installment. And this, and then, but what you have is the studio says, well, meet the Fockers is our big hit. So they go and they make, you know, a ride for it at universal studios. Like, no, nobody wants to go see a, you know, meet the Fockers ride. <laughs> right. This is a, popular because of meet the fuckers it was popular what came before it and i think we see this a lot uh, in films where the sequel is really successful but it's only because the original was great and um and i don't think the none of them was bad but i but i do think you know it's people went to see it because they loved the conjuring part two and mm-hmm. the nun in that movie yes and i think this movie is pretty decent gothic horror but unfortunately, it's mixed with kind of some really trendy modern horror that I think sucks, like modern PG-13 style of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really creepy. And there's a huge, for me, like oppressive amounts of tension. I was kind of sick to my stomach and terrified through much of the film. The problem was it was just nonstop the same two gags over and over and over over and over again you have very slowly reaching to pull back the curtain on something and you have the misdirection of looking one way and then there's something behind you jump scare and it 
there must be 300 jump scares in this movie. <laughs> this, I've never seen a more egregious use of a jump scare well, than in the nun. Well, well, let's talk about that real quick. So yeah. when when I saw the freaking trailer to this thing, yeah, that jump scare, which I never, I never watched. Okay, okay. Well, it's the best jump scare in the film. And and uh, if, yeah. in case, like I know, like our friend Dino, for example, he doesn't watch trailers. So if you haven't seen this yet, Dino, I won't spoil this moment. I'll just kind of describe it in general to Josh, so the people who have seen it know what we're talking about. But there's a walking toward you in the hallway right um okay and and then and then that's our main character um the farmiga character and then in the background we have a nun following in this tunnel right yeah okay that's in the trailer that that the way that all plays out and i i jumped and, and honestly jump scares don't usually get me but i don't know like i jumped out of my seat again like i jumped really high on that and i'm like wow and and like they have that jump scare music jacked up high so i you know the trailer was super scary and having had a scary experience with the conjuring to josh i'm like this nun thing is freaky and so seeing a whole movie about it it, it reminded me a lot of and, and I think this is one of the issues of why it's been, I guess, you know, criticized. At least for me, this is what happened to me. Do you remember when The Dark Knight Rises came out? When you go see The Dark Knight Rises, that's the third installment of um, the Batman trilogy. Um, I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to go see a Batman movie. But, like, I remember when I walked out of there, <laughs> I said to people, that would have been really great if only it had a little more Batman in my Batman movie, right? And so I know that this title is The Nun, and as you said, maybe the title refers to the protagonist, um, to the good nun, but but I think everybody has the impression that when this movie's about the nun, that we're going to get a lot of the nun, but the scary nun, we really don't get that much of her. And it's like the same amount of Batman... <laughs> That's in the Dark Knight Rises. So I think I don't. I disagree with you. I think I, that's one thing that happened that went wrong. I, I personally, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think, I think the nun is used sparingly. Like the shark and Jaws is maybe what I would more compare it to. But there are a thousand nuns in the movie. It's not like the movie is short on nuns. There, there are. <laughs> but this lots is the nun. nuns in the movie, Josh. It's and there the are lots nun. Of scary nun-related <laughs> moments in the movie. We just don't see Volok, the one that we're most used to from The Conjuring. I, we probably see Volok equally as much as we see in The Conjuring. Maybe a little less. But Josh, you, that's the one we bought the movie ticket for, right? When we read The I Nun. I agree with you, but there's lots of scary... I, for my money, they could have... I don't. I didn't know that those other ones weren't Volok. Like, I, you know, you only know it based on the reveal of the nun's face. We see a lot of nun habits, which is their... Um, like little hoodie that they wear right. and um, and I think you don't and the way that this is played again there are a lot of really slow reveals to jump scare and um, and you don't know who's under those habits most of the time right so mm -hmm. I think I was filled with dread throughout the movie I mean I was really scared during this movie I just you know the net reaction though is especially with there's a young boy character that to me just almost ruined the movie because I just feel like that character did not work. It's like this modern type of horror that just like 
sucked in my opinion. Um, I really liked Father Burke, who was the character played by Damien Bashir, and I just felt like he was so poorly used in the movie. Like I felt like he, yeah, he, that that was my biggest complaint. I would have he needed to be Van Helsing, right, for this film, and, and I think. I don't think you had to diminish uh, Taji Farmiga's character at all. She was great. Her role was perfect, but I think you really needed to amp up, um, you know, the father character, the father bird character. You, he just needed to be a, a badass, and he just really was underutilized, in my opinion. I agree. We needed more of his expertise and experience. We we needed to see his competence yeah. in in this field. Yes. I'm with and, you, you know, on that. You know, we are usually pretty tough on jump scares. I mean, I, we're not fans of the jump scare generally, but I. But we also have both said. I know. I remember we definitely said this when we uh, reviewed. Um, I'm blanking on the name of that one. Robert C. Cargill's first film. Oh yeah, Sinister. Sinister. We both really loved the jump scare in that movie. Oh, yeah. And I think when a jump scare is done well, it's a totally valid form of scare. If it's if it's um, organic to the story, if it really gets you, it's fun to have one or two of those really goose you during a horror film. That's fine. Um, I I think when a film like this seems to rely on it so heavily, it's like it's a little cheap. This felt very cheap in terms of the use of jump scares. I didn't. I thought most of them were ineffective. The interesting thing, though, is the build up to that jump scare still creates dread. It still creates tension. Right. And so there was a lot of suspense in this movie, waiting for those jump scares. Because you know it's coming. Yeah. But they just came too frequently. They weren't always organic, and it was the same thing over and over again. Like I think it's a really creepy feeling to get the see something out of the corner of your eye, you turn, it ducks out of the way to, you know, to mention communion again. Mm-hmm. Like there's a little creepy thing peeking at you from behind the corner. Oh man. Yes. That's creepy, but you can, you can't do it. I, okay. Let's, let's, I'm, I've been a little, you know, I've, I've overstated how many jump scares there are, but let's be, let's try to be realistic. Do you think there are 30 jump scares in the movie? Um. Yeah. I mean, I. I think that's. Are there are there fifty jump scares in the movie? Mm, I probably wouldn't go fifty. I think okay, there's the, probably a good thirty though, right? Jump yeah. Scares in the movie. Yeah, it has a lot. And I would say three of them are awesome, and then the rest just feel like do something different, like right. Try another technique. Well, let me just okay. There are many types of horror. <laughs> this is for this is for the filmmakers out there, and I don't know anything. Okay, so. I, as usual but i just want to tell you what if this joshua what if this had happened this is not a scene in the movie but what if that scary nun like crawled over on the floor okay picture this crawled over on the floor and started chewing on the hand of like the protagonist like like you see that that nun clamp down no like biting on the hand and rip off the skin like like partial degloving if you saw that now wouldn't that be scary i don't like the crawling on the floor that's actually closer to the modern horror stuff that i hate but yeah 
a, a little more gore you're saying could be scarier i mean there's some it, there's just, some cool moments in well because well, like for example and maybe maybe dave who's had bad experience with nuns in real life maybe he could speak to this <laughs> but but it just it seems like that would be the last thing a nun would do is bite you and um I, I, like, there, there's a really creepy like mother superior type nun in this movie mm-hmm. which i'm assuming is valak but we don't totally confirm that as far as i right agreed and this is a nun that we encounter a couple times it's veiled with a black veil and it's like that was so creepy to me yes but then they kind of just waste it like they, they totally. there is like kind of a gore moment but it's it's just so weak you know when it's when it's i don't know yeah it, it, it's i think this film is really weak on story i i think there's it should have worked though and i think i think if they had just stuck more closely to a gothic tale but see this is the thing i don't like about james wan movies either like they have to be modern and flashy and kind of show you that he knows how to move the camera and they have to have some cgi and it's just like I can understand why a filmmaker like Corn Hardy would want to take his game up to the next level, having worked on a really low budget with his previous film and had all this critical acclaim and then now get to work like on a studio level for James Wan. And I understand like why you, I understand the instinct to want to kind of like show off what you can do. But for me, the net result is just like, it feels sloppier. Mm-hmm. It feels less realistic it ha- and then and then you're taking time from really building those characters could have had a lot more depth agreed you know? and i think even giving those characters a little more depth spending a little bit more time developing because there's interesting themes explored too but they're not let me just put it this way there's interesting themes introduced but they're not really explored <laughs> very deep yeah that's true and so i think um I think for me, the hard thing, and I, and I apologize. I know we had a listener recently, Jackie, I believe who was saying like, I hate when people review movies based on, you know, the movie they wanted to see or what they, their expectation was and not the movie they got. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's fair. I, but I also think, you know, if you're human expectation, always colors our experience. Right. And so it's hard to ever take that out, you know? And, and so I, I feel like it's okay. As long as you do both, if you kind of objectively talk about, what was there. I think it's fair to talk about what your expectations were to some degree um, or what wasn't there to some degree. Yeah. But especially you know, since the marketing the, the leads film could have been so much more. I think there were a lot of missed opportunities and I think they were replaced by some stuff that was kind of gimmicky and cheap. Yeah. Well, and, um, yes. For example, let's talk about that. Um, for me, this, the nun was sometimes, it was so bizarre. It was unintentionally funny. And like, and I'm sure I went with a couple of friends from work. What? Unintentionally funny. I was cracking up in this film. I was laughing a few times. Let me tell you, let me tell you. What? I, mean, I won't spoil anything for people out there. But um there there is a let's call it a weapon <laughs> in this that immediately, immediately made me think of Monty Python's holy hand grenade. Oh brother. Jay, this no, is no, like- no. I'm We've serious. Had this discussion since the first Conjuring movie. No way. Anything that can be parodied, all of a sudden, like it's a problem for you. Josh, Josh, they have a holy that what amounts to a holy hand grenade in this, and I'm yeah. not the only one. You know, the holy hand grenade is based on a real 
Catholic thing that the Queen of England. It's like one of the royal jewels or something like that. Like I don't know. How, I look. I'm I'm not cultured in the ways of <laughs> the uh, the British royalty, but my understanding is. <laughs> That the holy hand grenade is based. I've seen the actual crown jewel that that's based on. Mm. It looks like that. It's not like they made it up for Monty Python. Monty Python was referencing okay. something real. Fair enough. Catholic Church. But tell me this, okay? And we'll come back to it in detail a little more in a minute. But tell me this. So recently, I checked out Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan um, mm-hmm. on on Amazon, and and yeah. I'm coming back around to our point here. And that stars John Krasinski, who most people know as Jim. On the office. Well, I thought it was super dumb of them to start out with Jim or John Krasinski in an office causing trouble in an office because they're trying to get us to view him as this action character. But if they put him back in an office being mischievous and causing trouble and annoying the boss... Mm-hmm. That is a huge mistake. And so if I know as a filmmaker, if I know that Monty Python did a holy hand grenade, then I don't want to go near that in my film because people are going to think holy hand grenade. And that's yeah. what happened. When I, I mean, said that, a, a few people chimed in and like, yep, that's exactly what I thought of. <laughs> yeah, dude, you you love Van Helsing. And so you want to see them <laughs> go to the basement in the Vatican and get like a machine gun that shoots like blades or some ridiculous thing but if i was writing a true gothic horror film i would want something that was based on something the actual catholic church uses like an actual holy relic that to me i'm just sick to me that's cool i like that's what i would want from a film how about faith why couldn't they use faith since they're fighting a demon yeah i mean that's just been done right like that's the exorcist right so this is different and i think there's a moment where faith is tested, you know, a couple moments, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's look, that stuff is not fleshed out well, which is an issue with the movie, but there's nothing wrong with the Holy hand grenade. That's what what you want. You want a real Catholic relic from your Catholic priest. One more thing on the Holy hand grenade. Okay. Now, Josh, you can't, and I won't spoil it. I will not, but let's just, let's, let's characterize it this way. What gave the holy hand grenade, its power, what it is powered by. Okay. <laughs> Josh, come on. Like a rare, it's a rare commodity. Uh, okay? Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah, to say the least. And, and like, I mean, that's a serious eye roll. Now, I'm not trying to be a super jerk. I know I sound that way, you but, know, but I know, do want to come to terms with this. Uh, this is super annoying for people who haven't seen it. But listen, there, that you could say that is, like I said, a rare commodity, but <laughs> there are, certain things that one could do to approximate let's say mm-hmm. a similar mm-hmm. element yeah okay <laughs> well done well said that's good yeah we're staying away from spoilers people so yeah, yeah. But you know what i'm talking about yeah i i'm i'm with you 100 well, percent. that's all it was i'm just saying maybe but i mean it just it it doesn't i i didn't think it played well and and it made me giggle and okay one last one last scene and i'll stop being a jerk but the Um, way it was utilized is actually cool yeah and that could also be parodied quite easily right but the payoff is cool but i think it's cool because it agreed it fits the again the culture of the area that we're in romania Mm -hmm. set up in an interesting way that was neat yeah i like that. i I back you on that i agree i agree yeah that that came around and i'm like okay good 
But here, here's another thing that was so bizarre, and I laughed out loud. And this is not a spoiler. But there, there's, um, there are a number of bells in this. And there's one moment where a bell is being dragged on the floor, you know, in front of... Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now, that's a great idea. That would work well if, if he were a cat. Like, if you were trying to lure a cat, <laughs> they would chase that bell. But it's like... If I saw that was the worst moment of the movie for sure. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, why are we chasing a bell like a cat? That's so weird. Anyways, um, so let me let me compliment a couple of things because I don't want people to think I hate this movie because, uh, you know, actually I will say it is very beautiful. I think the film is is very atmospheric. Mm. I think it looks extremely professional and so forth. It is definitely a slow burn for me at least. I felt like it was really slow getting into it. Really? But, but yeah, but it was so, uh, I mean, after you have the opening sequence, right, which is, you know, to establish that we're in a horror film and that's creepy. But then like, you know, it was kind of a slow burn, which is fine. I wouldn't characterize it that way. Though. Really? Okay. Well, yeah, it was slow for my taste. So we'll put it that way. But um, I will give it credit for this, Josh. I do think there's some effectively scary imagery in this. I mean, there are things that if you... In my opinion, if you showed to a kid, like a young child, it would damage that child's brain like forever. They would be Imagine scarred. Imagine if they went to a Catholic school and they saw this movie. This would be game over for you. I know. They would be scarred forever. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, I get that. Like, I, I mean, I will say there is some scary stuff. The film looks great, but um, but I was laughing. I was kind of bored, and I just felt like the the demon nun was underused. I wanted to see more of that character, that monster, and that's just you know. But yeah, I okay. So just to respond to those things, I didn't I didn't see anything funny in it personally. I was never bored. I was I was really super scared during this movie, and I found it to be really high in suspense and dread. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I think I am now agreeing with you that I think in a film about the nun that we've been set, that's been set up in the conjuring Two, we should know everything about Valak by the end of this movie, right? Like mm-hmm. Valak should be the star of this film. I, 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 you've won me over. I mean, I think it does work because there are so many more very troubling nun moments all the way through the movie, mm-hmm. but I would, yeah, I would like to have a little more Valak by the end of it. Um, that would be my one, that would be my biggest criticism other than, which is my major criticism. It's a one note. Right. Film. They just really are very uncreative with the way that, um, the scares happen. And, and it's, it's really, it's two tricks and they do it repeatedly. And it's just, uh, it's just not fun anymore by the end. Yeah. You know exactly what it's going to do. Oh, they're going to do this again? Yeah, they're going to do this again. <laughs> well, let me ask you something, because you're smarter than I am. Tell me your opinion on this. And and we're don't worry, listeners, we'll stay away from spoilers once again. But um, so by the time this movie wraps up, okay, I mean, we understand that this is a, and I think everybody understood this already, that this is this is a prequel spinoff. I mean, this this the events in this film actually precede what happens in The Conjuring 2. At least that's how it seems to me. Now, so far, so good, Josh, right? Do you agree? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just check it. And, and, and so, <laughs> there's that. But by the time this film ends, I'm like, okay, are they, 
are they going to plug in are they going to try to make this nun thing like a a prequel trilogy you know because i felt like where this thing ends and where the conjuring 2 picks up i mean that was a vast chasm for them to span right and and it was it's like well i don't i'm not even sure how that character that monster ends up in conjuring 2 by the you know by the way this all works out and stuff so so i don't know that if they seems like a mistake right it seems like a mistake you said yeah or i don't know if they were planning on like you know this being very successful and then that leaves them room for a second and third prequel leading yeah. up i mean to- i think we saw that with annabelle i mean they they actually didn't like the first outing of annabelle even all the filmmakers in the studio all said this was a mistake we screwed up that's why they tried harder with Annabelle creation mm-hmm. um, and did better with Annabelle creation. And I think they probably thought the same thing here. Let's, let's leave room for another film. And um, yeah, yeah, I think you're dead on with that. And I think we probably will see the nun part two and it will prop that one will probably give us the connective tissue we need to make it to the conjuring. Well, yeah. And, and, and the box office, I mean, this had a good opening weekend. I mean, I believe it was, it was number one at the box office, right? Yeah, I'm just pulling. Oh yeah, I think it's doing really well. Yeah. yeah, I'm pulling this up here and 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 so I mean that's that's exciting I guess, but um yeah, I always love it when a horror film does well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I like to support it, but yeah, it looks like the the gross on this was opening weekend was uh 53.8 million. Wow. That's pretty that's pretty high. I mean, right? <laughs> 131 million worldwide. Um, yeah, which which made the Conjuring universe into the biggest rated R horror series ever in the history of cinema. Mm-hmm. And so, what what we're talking about? What was your worldwide there? Would you say one hundred and thirty one million worldwide? Yeah, and that was the opening weekend, right? Yeah, and now yeah. today, so we're a few days after the weekend. It's it's up to one hundred and forty one right now at the current. Yeah. But but man, that's and this was a uh, production budget according to Box Office Mojo of twenty two million, and so yeah, I'd say there probably is going to be a di- <laughs> more nun movies, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. if I were if I were to guess, last thing before we go into ratings and then we'll um, wrap this review up. But but um, what really excited me in the beginning, you talked about how you like the premise, and I agree. When did you see Martin Scorsese's film Silence? Did you see that? Yes, I did. Okay. I loved how I, I saw real parallels in the in the opening, like the mm. setup where, you know, they were going to investigate something. They were going to find out more, you know, from from what what had happened and stuff. And and, and so I, I saw very similar parallels there and I got super excited when this film opened. I'm like Oh my goodness, this is going to be incredible. So, so I mean, I there's definitely stuff to admire. I think there are good aspects to it. And it's not bad. I mean, for me, Josh, it's like a 6.5 out of 10. And, you know, I think if you're in the filmmaking industry and you want to, like, get a really good look at a film that has a great production design and production values for that matter... Um, I think, yeah, you could see it in the theater, but I think for most people, for me, this is a rental 6.5 is like rental range. It's a good red box. It's a good stream it on Netflix to me. What do you say? Wolfman? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I really like the setup again. It reminded me of Dracula. Um, it reminded me a great deal of Final Prayer, probably most of all. The film that Dave and I reviewed, also known as The Borderlands, um, about some priests that go to investigate some creepy goings-on at a Irish, I believe, um, mm-hmm. chapel. It reminded me of a bit of The Exorcist, and I, I'm sure that was not by accident. Um, I really like what they were trying to do. I mm-hmm. think ultimately it failed in the ways that I've mentioned. And so for me, I'm, I was going to come into the eight range. I think you may have talked me down a little bit. Um, hmm. okay. I guess I'll go with a 7.5. Okay. For this one. Yeah. I, I'm going to say this. I think it's worth seeing in the theater. It's not, it's far from perfect. If you're the type of person that likes to go to a horror movie with a big, like Friday night audience and scream along with a bunch of 13 year olds, like this is a great (laughs) one to do that with. I think this would be a lot of fun to see with a huge horror audience. You know, it's um, one, you know, don't think about it too hard because it's missing a lot with, regard to character development and story development and uh, and it could have been a lot better but i think it's fun personally so, yeah and and again i was scared i was legitimately creeped out through for the whole movie so that counts for a lot so are you gonna are you gonna buy this or is this just gonna be a rental i mean i'm a huge what? fan of the conjuring universe so far i i would say this one ranks fourth out of five um with Annabelle being the the lowest on the totem pole, that's the only one I don't own. I think I will buy this one as well. So okay. I would probably call this a buy it if you're a fan of the Conjuring universe. But definitely, I think the Conjuring, the Conjuring Two, and Annabelle Creation for me are all better than this. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'm with you. I mean, I I, I don't have any problem with people <laughs> seeing the theater to support horror cinema. So I, I like that. That's a good point. I'm with you. And and just for the record, um, I've seen nuns do some crazy things, but I never had one crawl across the floor and chew in my hand. Okay. <laughs> but, but Dave, would that would that scare you if that happened? Yes, I I would be a little bit uh, uh, a little bit frightened of a nun who would crawl on the floor and chew on, on the hand. Yes. Yeah. So Dave Dave doesn't make it to the theater that often you do more now that your challenge has been completed. I don't yeah. know that I would recommend you see this in the theater because you so rarely uh, get to see a film in the theater. I think there are better films mm-hmm. to, to see in the theater than this. Um, okay. But because of your experience with nuns, I do think you're going to enjoy this more than oh, I, I, I think I'd be there with you. I th- think I'd be terrified because I've been having nightmares about nuns. I had them for 12 years. Yeah. So I think that I would be uh, terrified. I think I'd be scared right along with you, like you, Josh, uh, throughout this movie. No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would like to, uh, I'm hoping it'll be out for a little bit longer. My uh, my goal was to see it today. It just didn't work out because um, uh, of work. But I would really, I really would like to see it on the big screen. And like you said, with a crowd. If yeah. I walked into the theater and I was the only one in there, um, well, that'd be just a whole new level of terror, I think. Dude, that happened to me. I went to the theater. This is the creepiest part, right? So they have you select your seat. 
Mm-hmm. There were supposed to be five other people in the theater. And I went in there and it was totally dark. I couldn't see anything. And so I, you know, because something was playing and it was, the screen was pretty dark. So I sat down. I'm in, I always sit in the front row opposite of Jay. I like not the very, very front where you're like staring up at the screen, but like the first of the second section, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh And um, it finally gets to a bright part in the film and I'm pretty creeped out. And I look, kind of look over my shoulder and the theater's empty. Oh boy. And this movie has a lot of like, there's someone there and then you turn and they're gone. Yeah. Like a lot of that. <laughs> and so I was so freaked out. I'm like, Oh my gosh, is there nobody else in the theater? Like where are all the other people who had selected seats? <laughs> right. That's it, it And that may have, that honestly, that may have contributed to me feeling really, okay, I might've had a little bit to do with it. Yeah. freaked out during the film, <laughs> but I was, you know, but yeah, Dave, I mean, the, you know, I, I first think... a spoiler alert for our next discussion, but I would recommend seeing Searching. I would recommend seeing Black Klansman. There's a few other movies in theaters right now mm-hmm. I'd say see before the nun. But again, you've got a very specific personal experience. Yeah, that. right. Exactly. Exactly. Dave, when you do see the nun, make sure you text us because I really want to hear that, you know, text us when you go into the theater and then text us when you come out because I'd love to hear your immediate reaction. Okay. I was, I would do, I will do that. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, nobody cares about this, but guys, you won't believe I've actually changed where I sit in the theater now a little bit. So I, it's, it's still the top back row, but, but lately, Josh, I don't know what it is, but you know, I'd sit in the top back row center, but the row in front of me, the people's heads, are like in the bottom part of the screen. I can see their heads and it's making me crazy. Plus, in the rare event, if you do have to get up and you and you must run to the restroom, then when it's a really crowded packed theater, I hate going in front of people and bothering them because it's like mm-hmm. against my ethics, you know? So um, I have started, I used to think people were so weird for doing this, but I, I, I do the top back row, bam, on the very end. And I do yeah. hate being at that angle, but no heads are ever in my way. And I can kind of lean against the wall <laughs> and I can immediately exit down the stairs without getting in front of people. It's amazing. There you go. I sit on the, I sit anywhere between the middle and the end. But if I, you know, I, I, I often choose the end seat. I like the front row. Because it's like the one right there with the screens in front of my face. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I'm seeing over the chasm of the lower seating. Right. I've got extra leg room, easy exit. I love it. Nice. Nice. Dave, do you want to tell everybody where you are? Um, you know, it's funny because I sit in that same general area. I will go to the back row, uh, but I don't go into the, I don't go to the middle. Um, hmm. I sit more towards the aisle like you do. Interesting. Uh, because a lot of people try to get that middle uh, in the top row, but not like you're saying, not too many people sit on the side. And I usually go in an off time. I mean, uh, I think, you know, when, for those years when I, when I had uh, flex time at work and I'd go on Friday afternoon, there were a lot of times I'd be the only one in the theater. Um, so I'm not usually dealing with big crowds. Right. Um, but... You know, for those times when I am, uh, it's it's better to be near the aisle. I agree with you. Sometimes those back row seats don't recline. That 
really well, no, because yeah, they're yeah. right up against the wall. Yeah, yeah, Remember that. Especially well. <laughs> with the Cinemark Firehouse now, every seat turns into like a lazy boy. So that's mm-hmm. true. Like, I don't want to do that on the back row. But I, I just I want to fully lay down and possibly take a nap if I feel like it. I can't have people behind me though. I can't have people talking behind me. So or, that again in a scary movie, it's scary to have people behind you sometimes. Oh, okay. So a quick story about that. Um, I forget what it was. So what what film was it? Uh, I don't know if it was like the first Purge or Slender Man. It was something recently. I was sitting on that end seat that we're talking about, but <laughs> right beside me was not the wall, but this little like cubby hole space. And I think they played the nun trailer and I was really bothered the whole time and distracted and worried that something was going to pop its face right there beside me. <laughs> I was so, I was so unsettled. So like if I had, if I had seen the nun sitting in that seat, that probably would have affected me differently. <laughs> but anyway, I get, I get freaked out when there's a ton of people. Cause I worry about mass shootings and I get freaked out when there's just me and like one other person. Mm-hmm. I think this person's going to like kill me when the lights go dark. For a second. <laughs> Come over, like I'm going to see them walking toward me with a knife all of a sudden in the middle of the film. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our review of the nun. I hope people <laughs> feel like you got your money's worth on that. Um, and now I'm really excited to talk about this one with you, Josh. And and thank you for encouraging me to go see Searching. So when I first saw the trailer for this, I mean, anybody who knows me knows what I thought right off the bat, right? Because yeah. <laughs> first things first, let's just establish. Can we can we all agree, Josh? And you told me, ignore the trailer, forget the trailer. Because when I saw that trailer, I'm like, that looks terrible. I, there's, I'm not wasting my time. I was Well, again, I hadn't seen the trailer, but I just thought I had seen the movie and I just thought just whatever. If you think it's bad, then just put it out of your mind because the movie's good. And you were correct. Um, you were well, this correct. This is one that Kagan and I talked about it Sundance mm-hmm. and it was the episode after you had had your kind of little rant about how you were worried about how technology was going to be used in movies from now on. <laughs> right. And so when Kagan and I talked about this at Sundance, I, I said, I think on the show, this, you know, this is the type of movie Jay is probably worried about. Like, this is the kind of thing he's worried that the direction things are going. It all has to be about the use of technology. But, but you know, I, I really enjoyed Open Windows. I know some people enjoyed Unfriended, but I would say by and large, most people didn't like both of those. And I think this takes a formula of like screen life, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's a new version of the found footage film to some degree. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a movie that takes place completely on screens like those others I mentioned. But this is the one where it worked. Like this is the one where they cracked the code. They figured out how to do an entire movie that takes place on computer screens and phones. I should say that the film is directed by a first-time filmmaker Anish Chaganti, mm-hmm. also written by Anish Chaganti and Sev Ohanian. I'm sorry, I should have figured out how to pronounce your names, guys, before uh, <laughs> reviewing the film. But it's starring John Cho. Yes, they reference an, an internet meme uh, on the Slenderman episode, <laughs> starring John Cho. Um, we also have um, Deborah Messing, mm-hmm. who is probably the other star in the film, and then and other folks. I, I think um, is it Joseph Lee 
who plays Peter. Gontro's brother, Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. He, I thought he was a standout in the film. Absolutely. I thought he was really good. But essentially what you have is John Cho is playing a single father. His daughter goes missing and he tries to contact her and starts to take part in an investigation to find his daughter first on his phone then on his computer, then on his daughter's computer. And, and this is the thing it does seamlessly. It feels like how we use devices in our real lives right now agreed it feels organic and yet completely cinematic i especially in the beginning i think it really works i think yeah that device starts to fall apart for me the further the film goes along agreed i think it it's weaker as it goes in terms of the way it's using screens mm-hmm. but um I, I don't think i've ever seen anything that's used this you know, format that's used this device storytelling device that's felt both completely realistic and totally cinematic. I'm I'm with you. Yeah. So much. I I'm, I'm so happy I saw this because yeah, after unfriended, so open windows was decent, you know, it was okay. And, but after unfriended, I'm like, Oh my, they've got to stop with this, you know, like, (laughs) but, 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 um, I, you know, I took your advice and I heard other people loving on this. And so the first thing I'm going to put out there, Josh, for me, this is kind of in the PSA category, but, but in a positive way. I mean, I think, I think this is a mystery first, a drama second, and I think it has some f- thriller elements. I would not call this a horror film, but I think that it is such an effective type of mystery thriller-ish thing that I think horror fans would like it. And enjoy it, you know, even though it's not scary per se. I mean, you could argue on some level, right, that, um, hey, how is a missing kid not horror, right? But but I don't think it has the tone and flavor uh, of the genre. You know what I mean? The, it doesn't yeah. have those elements. And so, you know, I'm not splitting hairs. I just want people to be clear that I, I feel like it's a mystery and a very effective one. Yeah, I'm okay like with this on my horror list for the year, but I I I agree with you. It is more in the mystery thriller um, category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you don't know how you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's I think in some ways that's kind of a spoiler because you don't know where this is going as you start the film, and so I think it had a lot of dread for me throughout. You know what I mean? Like I was uneasy because I didn't know where this was headed. Right. For most, for most of the film, you know, I guess when it's over, you can say, well, that was a thriller or that was a, mm-hmm. it was a mystery, as you've said. I also think it's interesting, um, this director, or sorry, this producer, there's another name I'm going to kind of mess up. Timur Bekmambatov. Mm-hmm. Timur Bekmambatov. There, I've said it. Nailed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, this this producer is someone he directed abraham lincoln vampire hunter first of all we should say and wanted and night watch he's the guy who directed night watch and day watch that's what he's best known for. Mm-hmm. but he's also the producer of the unfriended films and he is really invested in this idea of a movie that takes place on screens like he sees this as a new genre that he wants to 
push that he wants to that he sees as like the future of filmmaking you know which is so ironic been, what's that which is a, a little ironic right because it i mean when you watch a film the film is occurring on screen anyway like yeah. uh, films are on screen in and of themselves like inherently so yeah. so not necessary but, but. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's cool that he's trying to expand a genre. you know like i think the way we think of found footage as a genre and again i think this is a subset of found footage to some degree yes arguably. yeah but, but i think i i can see this becoming kind of its own little subgenre of horror i, I kind of like that as a as an idea or just filmmaking i guess in general but he's a very creative filmmaker if you've seen night watch day watch and night watch you know mm-hmm. he's an extremely creative filmmaker he also produced um hardcore henry so he's someone who likes <laughs> to take chances and yeah experiment. i admire that hardcore henry was fun and interesting yeah yeah but but it is gimmicky though i mean let's just let's admit i mean it's kind of gimmicky but it is well executed, as you've said. I mean, that's the thing that I think is the the big takeaway with this, Josh. I just want to underscore it again. And I got over the gimmicky nature of it after about a minute and a half. And I think I was completely sucked into the story for the middle hour. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to feel gimmicky again toward the end. That's true. But but let's talk about it. So the first 10 minutes, do you remember the first 10 minutes of Pixar's Up? How it's just, it could be this beautiful short film that's so mm-hmm. emotionally impactful and powerful. Um, yeah. That's that's honestly, like, I could not believe how powerful and, and how much the first 10 minutes of this film affected me. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. great. Tremendous. So yeah, I was, I was along for the ride right away. Yeah, and I was talking to listeners uh david from the uk juan and dino and i said this is a must-see for dino like make sure you see this in the theater and uh and juan was kind of like well what about me like uh, my chopped liver and i just think (laughs) and i know that there are listeners that hate it when we say this if you're a parent you're gonna really be impacted by this film oh yeah it's a movie about a parent with you know with the worst case scenario something bad's happened to your child i'm sorry i know you can intellectually understand it it's just going to impact you differently yep. and it does agreed yeah there, so, there's a lot of that I this was, year in I the was cinema by the first 10 minutes of this movie and i i think i'm pretty sure i cried a couple times during this movie yeah yeah i'm i'm with you i mean it is emotionally affecting i agree with that 100% and yeah there there have been a lot of those this kind of movies where they prey upon the fears of parents this year in 2018. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Cargo, a quiet place. Mm -hmm. What else? Yeah. Searching. (laughs) Like those, those come. I love, I love that because that's, I, you know, I, when I watch a horror film and this is what my, you know, my wife hated a quiet place for this reason. I love seeing my worst fear realized, you know, I love seeing the thing that keeps me awake at night in a horror film. That's yeah part of the experience right yeah yeah so again on that level i mean you, one could argue that this has definitely uh, like true horror themes in it or but but real yeah life yeah real life horror i'm with you it is rated pg-13 we'll tell people that too um not that that's bad or good i'm just putting it out there but um i i think it's definitely worth people's time i mean i i hope hope that people go see this in the theater um for sure i mean i think it's worth supporting but uh, what amazed me is 
Josh, I just want to say again, I didn't think this concept could be done. And if I were being 100% honest, I think I think uh, Anish Shiganti, I think, pulls it off almost entirely. Like I, I'd say like 85% pulls it off. And, and honestly, that, that may be, in my opinion, the best you can get with pulling it off. <laughs> yeah. But, but still, I'm color me impressed you know so any any final thoughts before we go into ratings josh i mean i would say yeah i i pretty much knew where this was going three-fourths the way into the film so Mm -hmm. that's the one place i would dock it i guess um and again i felt like it felt less authentic toward the end of the film Mm -hmm. Agreed. um there were a couple little tricks you know look it's it's tricky and just like found footage in some ways it's harder and you know this was again his first film I remember at Sundance, Kevin Smith interviewed him and was saying, like, this is so good. Are you going to do this again? And he said, no, like this was too hard. I just want to make a normal movie like this is so much harder than making just a regular <laughs> fictional film. You know, there's so much more to consider. I think that is the case a lot with found footage films, too. I think people look at them as cheap movies, mostly because I think probably because of the aesthetic and the shaky cam and the, you know, and because they can do them inexpensively, there are probably a lot of bad ones. But I think the reality is that to make a good found footage film, it takes a huge amount of planning and thought on the filmmaker's part. And I think this is also in that camp. Like it seems really hard to, to pull off. Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, in, in earlier when you said I liked, there was something you said I really liked. You said that, they actually use technology in this film the same way that we use it. And I agree with that 100%. Um, I think the fact that for whatever reason they got the licensing or paid to use the same platforms like, you know, Google and, and Gmail, like you actually see them use the things that you use every day. And I think that's yeah. a lot more effective. There's only one exception to that. And uh, you know, yeah, I would say, yeah, this but, is ninety percent probably like real technologies, mm-hmm. and they and I don't know how they got away with it, but because I've even heard before in terms of film licensing that a if you use any Apple products, you can't use any you know PC products, or if you go with PC, you can't use any Apple in the film. Like they they limit you, but that's not the case with this movie. They use Windows and they use. Um, Mac mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, like you said, they use Facebook, they use Gmail, things that we really use. And they feel realistic. Like FaceTime is maybe overused for, you know, to get around some problems. Right. But it feels, still feels real. Like it feels realistic. And so I don't know. I, I really appreciated that. Um, I mentioned that I think when we talked about it with Sundance too, but that, you know, it's like um, Jerry Seinfeld talked about this when he dated his show. He said, I want to pay extra for all of the cereals that are in the house because I don't want to have any fake prop cereal that I eat. <laughs> he knew he loves cereal. He wants to eat cereal on the show. Yeah. And he said, you know, I, it's not product placement. Like we didn't get ever get pay, paid a dime to use it. In fact, we paid money to use it. But like it would take me out of it if I was watching a show and a guy pulled out some fake, you know, frosted flakes or Cheerios. He wanted to be eating real stuff. And I, I agree with that. Like I did props for a long time and I would always try to find product placement, not only 
they just get like when you're on a low budget it helps to get you know all of your soda for free soda pop for free right but i really liked having real products that i think it makes the world feel more realistic i agree and yeah i mean part of the objective is to make us identify with the characters and to relate and yeah if it looks like our world actually in the online world right because mo- computer stuff in movies is always so lame because it's always super. so fake <laughs> it's doing stuff that yes. you know doesn't really happen like technologies that don't really exist yes i agree all right so for me josh i am shocked by this but searching is an eight out of ten i think it's worth seeing in the theater for sure i think this is a great date night movie just putting it out there and you know i'd call this a strong rental recommendation for sure so if it's out of theaters by the time you hear this episode you know not necessarily a horror film just putting it out there it's a but it's a great mystery and i think it works really well eight out of ten what do you say wolfman yeah, I first of all, we should mention like we did with the nun. I think this is doing really well in theaters and this is a much lower budget. So I think it's really exciting that a film like this that, you know, could have easily died is doing really well just by word of mouth because people are really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And so I think you will have a chance to see this in theaters. I say go see it in theaters. I think it's absolutely worth seeing in, in the movie theater. I think Jay's right. It's a good date night movie. If you're a parent, like, go see this with your significant other. Um, it's a, it will mess you up. <laughs> uh, well, part of me wants to give this a 10 dude, but you know, cause I want to say for the genre it is, it pulls off what it does the best that it possibly could. But right. I do have some issues with it. As I've mentioned a couple times toward the end, um, it does fudge a tiny bit and it gets less convincing to me. And I knew where the plot was going. So right. I'm going to drop this down to a nine. But yeah, it's a seat in the theater, and I'm definitely buying this. I love this movie. Okay, awesome. And um, the the last thing I'll just put out, out there, um, I love so much that our protagonist, the John Cho father character, I love that he is intelligent. He's smart. He makes yeah. very intelligent decisions. He does what you know a normal, intelligent human being would do in his course of action. And I, and I love that aspect of it. The other thing I'm going to put out there for people, we have not mentioned the sequel to unfriended, which is unfriended dark web. I know it exists. I just have not braved it yet, but, (laughs) but, but, and you haven't seen that one either yet. Right, Josh. Okay. So the listeners can let us know how that one compares at least to unfriended. But anyway, just putting it out there. I know that's... Were there any other uh, Scream Life movies? Uh, we mentioned Open Windows, Unfriended, Searching, Unfriended... Those are the only ones I'm really familiar with. Okay. Uh, there probably are. I think that actually the um, Timor, who I mentioned, I think he was involved with another one called Profile, but I, Eddie, you'd have to fact check me on that. Okay, Profile. Gotcha. This is categorized by IMDb as a horror mystery thriller. Um, it's directed by Timur, actually, not just produced by him. It says an undercover British journalist infiltrates the online propaganda channels of so-called Islamic State, only to be sucked in by a recruiter. Okay, and that's it is, profile. Again, it's horror as one of the classifications. So we'll interesting. So that's another one then that we could profile check out. Twenty eighteen. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I see. I see here from the screenshot that they, they're at least using Skype. 
it looks like. So that's legit. <laughs> but then I believe Unfriended uses Skype too, so that doesn't, you know. <laughs> oh, uh, there's the paranormal activity where they use Skype, but that's not as, it's mean, not completely on. Yeah, and, and there is a Skype-esque like in the, the VHS, right? In one of the VHS films, right. so there's that, you know, there's, so yeah, we're seeing more of this, but, but anyway, Dave, have we sold you on searching? I mean, are you going to see this puppy? I think so. Yeah, I think I will check it out. Um, I haven't seen, I never did, I never did see Unfriended. I never, you know, the, a lot of those ones, um, when we discussed them here, uh, when you, you know, didn't seem as interesting to me. But I, I am interested to see how they would pull off a movie set on one, set on like just screens. Mm-hmm. So that would be really interesting. This sounds like the one, one to see of all of them. Yes. If the ones I've seen, yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. All right, Dave. Well, since you're, you've been so patient, Dave, will you take us into our feature review of Summer of 84? Sheriff's office reports they're likely looking for a white male. <laughs> appear to be males aged 12 to 16. It's a serial killer. All right, Summer of 84, 2018, directed by Francois Simard, Anouk Wiesel, and Giancarlo Wiesel, and written by Matt Leslie and Stephen J. Smith. This is a movie. It, it's set in, as the title says, in the summer of 1984. Four friends uh, begin to suspect that uh, their neighbor, who happens to be a uh, police officer, is a serial killer. A recently discovered serial killer who is targeting young boys between the ages, I think, of 12 and 15. So they spend their summer spying on him, and the more they dig into it, the more they become convinced. Um, but... Uh, as happens quite often, they, they're not able to convince other people. Um, one of them, uh, in particular, does not want to give up, uh, and he believes he is on the right track. Uh, I want to say Davy is the character's name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he continues to, to, uh, to delve into, um, continues to watch the neighbor, uh, and things start to get a little... A little dangerous for Davy and his, uh, and as a result, his friends as well, uh, as the summer drags on. Nice. Okay. Now, I, I, what I liked about the movie, uh, one of the things that that impressed me is there are some references, obviously, to 1984, but I didn't feel the movie hit you over the head with them. Right. I didn't think you know that there's. I think one discussion about Ewoks. Uh, and you know, you see the old logo for MTV at one point. So you definitely get an idea of when this is set, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel as if that they was, they were really, it was more in like the synth score, you know, it sort of had that synthesized score that you, you saw back in the eighties. And also the way that I thought, I thought the, that it approached its story with, with the young kids, you know, where, where they're doing, where, you know, you got these four friends and, and they're doing things that could be. Well, I mean, it really, the tension is high as they're doing, as they're carrying out their investigation. Because, you know, we sort of get caught up in their, in what it is they're doing. And, you know, so that increases the tension right there as they're carrying out their investigation over at his house when he's out on his 11 o'clock at night run. Um, You know, he does do a lot of things that seem pretty questionable. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So it sort of had to me a vibe of an 80s film until one a certain point. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's like a punch to the gut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if, how do I put, I don't, I wasn't sure that the movie totally earned that moment with what had gone before it. But I mean, it is, I mean, it was, I, I was thinking about it for like a, a, a day after I saw this movie, I was thinking about that, uh, you know, where it ultimately went. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I did like it as I was watching it. So, but I'm still sort of, I'm still not a hundred percent sure about how I feel about where the movie ultimately ended up. Yeah. Interesting. Now I've been hearing rave reviews. I mean, people are loving this thing and, and, and excited about it. So I've been really excited to see it, Dave. And I think you've described it really well. Um, it, it reminds me, it has that feeling of like, uh, it's like a little real rear window. It's a little disturbia. It's a little, um, Maybe I, even a, I was thinking a little, not really goonies. Cause these kids are a little bit older, mm-hmm. but this group of friends doing certain, you know, going out on this adventure. Right. Uh, yeah. A little it the summer, the yeah. losers club, maybe a, li- a little right. fright night, maybe. Um, right. so all of those things are kind of familiar and honestly, like, much of the film i'm like well this is a pleasant lovely funny little film like you know it's just you know it didn't feel like a horror film but as you said i mean it it it, it eventually gets there it definitely becomes a horror film oh yeah but um definitely. but josh i just i want to ask you about that balance though i mean h- how did how did you feel about that like in terms of the the horror related to non-horror let's say that's interesting. I, that's, I think that's maybe the one thing I didn't talk about when I reviewed this for the Sundance episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I like, I like how it's kind of poking its nose in throughout the film, how they're suspicious and they're, you know, and they're kind of always wondering about, you know, what, what's the possibility is of this taking place. Mm-hmm. I feel like it builds. I don't. I. I didn't feel like it was out of nowhere necessarily. It does definitely take a hard turn. Right. But I felt like it was building toward that gradually throughout the film. You know. And I. And I think like uh, the Burbs is a, another one that I thought of. Mm, yeah. Um, just because it's one of my favorite movies. But you know, I think all those references that you guys mentioned are definitely intentional and in there. Um, I also think it, it manages to capture a few things about childhood that felt really um, realistic to me. Yeah. I will disagree with Dave a little bit. I felt like this was fan service and I think that kind of turned me off a little bit. Like I felt like it was just like so over the top eighties to me. Like it just felt. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get that at all. I mean, I, I got, you know, I knew that there would be some references, um, and obviously it's set in the eighties, but I didn't feel like it hit me over the head at all with those, with those references. I mean, not, not really. I'm somewhere like in between mostly, you two on that. I mean, it, it's I think not, there was a lot of it in the dialogue between the boys, mm-hmm. like a lot of just like Kevin Smith kind of throwaway references, like the nicknames they call each other or, you know, like a lot of like little nods throughout. Um, 
And I just feel like those are a little cheap to me. Um, I think there was also, you know, it's hard to do something new in a film that is retreading so much familiar ground. I think what I think people are relating to in it is how earnest it is, because I think like a Stephen King film, Mm -hmm. like it, it, like stand by me or it, I think it is um, trying to be true to these kids, you know, and trying to be true to that experience of youth. I don't think it has the depth necessarily of a Stephen King work because, you know, he spends so much time crafting his characters and world that um, even in a film that only shows a little bit of that still has usually so much depth, um, that is hard to replicate typically. Um, I liked it, but I think, um, I think my complaints are probably have more to do with just feeling like it was a little bit pandering to, to the eighties, you know, nostalgia that's so prevalent in our world. Like the thing is like, I know some people are so over that. I still love it because I just loved the eighties so much. Same. So like I, I never get tired of 80s horror. I never get tired of 80s set movies, but 80s references are less interesting to me. Well, let me give you an example. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, I'm kind of in between you two on that, but mostly I'm leaning towards it was a little more organic. So for example, yeah, you got GI Joe walkie talkies, right? And that's pretty obvious. And then the Ewok talk, but then you have things like, um, They'll use phrases that unless you remember the 80s, you might not pick up on. Like like they made a joke about a, um, a Mac attack, right? Like a big Mac attack. Because that used to be part of McDonald's marketing and they, they used that in a phrase. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's something they would say from that era. And there were other little phrases that were definitely legitimately 80s centric. But yes, yeah, some, some of them were a little more blatant, you know, because... Sometimes in a film, what like what you're talking about, Josh, sometimes they'll have like a giant Pac-Man t-shirt and they'll be like, hey, here's my Rubik's Cube. Do you like Pac-Man, Pac-Man and Donkey Kong? You know, like, so it, it, it isn't that heavy handed, but. I see what you're saying. Like the, the way that it's incorporated, it is more subtle. Mm-hmm. But for me, the thing I don't like about it is that it's just not meaningful. Like, it's just like, it's more to just say to the audience, hey, we also know what the 80s things but like there's not like a it's there's not a usefulness for it in this no but i I think maybe i I think think maybe things is maybe more on the nose with here's my rubik's cube but i feel like it feels more organic in stranger things and 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 but i think uh, along lines of what jay is saying this could be this could very well be how these kids would talk to each other during this time period right yeah. You know, so I, that's why I didn't that's why I didn't feel as if it was sort of hitting over the head that that was just that was just my feeling. I also feel like these kids are fantastic mm-hmm. and like in the scope of child actors. They're usually so bad that we should always celebrate uh, a good outing. But in a in a time period where we've just seen it in Stranger Things like these kids, I feel like don't stack up to those kids. I feel like these are they're not as strong as the kids that we've just recently seen in it and 
and Stranger for, Things. For so, some of them, some of them I'll agree with you. Yeah, for some well, of them, that's, I, I'll that's agree. hard, you know, because it's like any other yeah. year. They, they're really, like, they're wow, really good. These are some of the best young actors yeah. I've ever seen in a, in a horror. Yeah, movie. yeah, I, I I agree with you as far as the performances. I thought they were good, but they didn't exactly you know blow me away like some of the other films that you mentioned there. Yeah, or or Stranger Things. Yeah, they're definitely good. Um, I loved. What about? Well, first of all, I want to address something Josh said a moment ago. When you talked about the earnestness of this film, <laughs> I thought this weird thing. I'm like, yeah, if Summer of 84, if this film were a kid waiting in a pumpkin patch, the Great Pumpkin would definitely appear for this because it is <laughs> right. that earnest, that sincere. So I back you on that. The other right. thing that this, you know, I, it reminds me of like, uh, you know, as Better Watch Out is to Christmas time, I think Summer of 84 is to summertime. And, and I feel that for sure. But my favorite thing is just the concept that every serial killer is somebody's neighbor. Like that whole theme that they keep hitting on. Like even serial killers live next door to somebody. Right. And it's, right. it's funny because the, you hear the same line at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. I think they're delivered the exact same way. Mm-hmm. But it's much more impactful when you hear it the second time, I mean, that's not, that's nothing new. That happens a lot. Of, uh, you know, it's happened before in movies, but I like that. I like that you hear the same line at the beginning and you think, Oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you hear it at the end and you're just kind of like, wow. Yeah. I really liked rich summer in this as the police officer as well. I just think he did a great job here. Most people recognize him from mad men. I, I just think he really crushed it in this role. Yeah. For sure. Um, I think one of one of the strongest moments for me, and I'll be careful how I talk about it, but there is a a uh, a kill scene, a death scene that we see. And and just moments before that happens, the the character that that's killed, the victim expresses something you know, about <laughs> needing needing to survive and why, and that's all I'll say about it. And that gave that gave that death some genuine weight because that's like sort of what I was talking about. Yeah. yeah, that's the moment I'm talking about. Yeah. In that moment, because I was like, man, I, th- this is this is serious. Like there's a lot at stake here. And that was heavy and, and, and hard. And I that was a punch to the gut. So, yeah, I'm with you then, Dave, uh, for sure. I mean, that that gives some serious weight to that that kill. And that's not always the case in horror films. People get killed and you're like, okay, next, you know. But right, right. That was good. All right. So, um, yeah, it's kind of difficult to talk about this just because, um, you know, the the horror is reserved for a different, for a certain point and, you know, we don't get tons of it. And so we can't say a whole lot about it because we don't want to re- reveal anything, but, um, but but this is very enjoyable. I, I this is almost like you know how we had that um you, you, those gateway horror films for like little monsters you know stuff that you could start kids out on and transition. You know I think this is a good like early teen type of horror film. I mean it's got some language in it and stuff, and it does get pretty strong uh, toward the end. But I mean like maybe like a I don't know fourteen or fifteen year old. Maybe yeah. what, what it's he, also like pre political correctness too. So there's a lot of right, not only right. is there language, but there's like a lot of kids talking how they talked in the eighties, but like 
ways that like modern audiences might be a little bit like, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't want my kids <laughs> to learn that word. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> there are a couple funny moments in this. I mean, the the kids are humorous. I have to say that. Um, I, I will say that I did catch of all the things that they nailed, like in terms of time period, there was an, a line that was pretty anachronistic. Um, they they said at one point, Mackie's a cop with a sick reputation. And, and the word sick was not used in that sense back in 1984. <laughs> like so. Right. So that was interesting that slipped in there. But, but otherwise, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff was really incorporated well. And I, I was, mentioned this when we talked about it for Sundance, but for me, like the opening scene of the night games, like that felt that rung so true to me. And that's the first time I've really seen that depicted in movies that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Like that, the way they're playing like flashlight tag or whatever they're playing, like kick the can kind of thing. Like totally so many of my childhood summers were completely filled up with that. That, um, yeah. Really enjoyed that scene on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And you know, and when I, and I've been a little bit hard on it in terms of it being kind of fan service, but I think, um, you know, it is extremely grounded compared to these directors, other movie turbo kid, which is like an over the top fantasy film. Like it compared to that, this is like, you know, this is very much stripped down and like in a, in the real world compared to their other movies. Yeah. Well, and I love, you know, I love that aspect. <laughs> I love, I love when something's in the real world, I, I guess. And, and the thing is, I can't say this is a criticism. I, I really can't because I think by the majority of the film, not being a full blown traditional horror film. I mean, it's, it's very warm and cut, cuddly and adorable. Um, that gives the, you know, the horror parts a lot more power and strength. But I just want to tell the horror fans out there, if you do end up watching this, which I hope you do, because it's 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 good. Um, you know, I just hope you're patient about that because, you know, sometimes I, I get impatient because for a while when I was watching this, I was enjoying myself thoroughly, but I'm like, hey, this is a great film to review on Movie Podcast Weekly, you know, and I'm like, and, and I'm, I was just thinking, is this even a horror film? Is horror coming in this? And and it certainly does come, but um, I, I guess I just wish, I, I don't know, if there were more in it, then it wouldn't have such a strong impact at the end, so I can't even critique it for that, so I guess it's interesting, and if you just have that expectation, you know, I feel like you won't be disappointed at all but maybe that's just me you guys I, I am a clock watcher as we've established yeah i mean i don't think like you know if i compare this to the other movies that it reminds me of like it's definitely more horror than the goonies it's definitely more horror than the burbs it's not you know it's more horror than rear window it's more horror than disturbia but it has it feels like mostly stand by me with just some horror at the end kind of but i again i do think it builds gradually throughout the film i don't think it's just I mean, it, it, like I've said, it takes a hard turn, but right. I think well it's there throughout. I think we're getting pieces of it. And I think that that uh-huh. fun rear window style tension is what makes us, you know, a film like this enjoyable. Right. Right. I think Disturbia actually is right on the money for this. I think that's a very good comparison is uh, Disturbia. Yeah. Cause you know, this- I like the style of this a lot more than Disturbia. Yeah. I'd agree with that. But, but yeah, I mean, Disturbia gets serious at the end as well. 
Okay, well, let's go into ratings, and uh, Dr. Shock, start us off on your rating for Summer of 84. All right, I will come in uh, at an 8.5, and I say uh, definitely stream this, definitely watch it. Um, and I will be picking it up when it comes out on DVD, uh, but it's one of the I definitely think you should watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Wolfman Josh, what do you say? Um, I would give this one a 7.5. I think it's worth watching as well. I think it's an easy rental recommendation for me. I would consider buying it if the Blu-ray's got some sweet special features because I really like the filmmakers. I'm really interested to see how a period piece like this is constructed and what the inspirations for all of these things are. So like if there's a if it's a packed disc, this is a buy it for me, but otherwise like generally i would say it's a strong rental recommendation mm-hmm. and for jay of the dead here i i'm right there with you josh i give it a 7.5 out of 10 and i think it's because it it does eventually pack a punch but up until that point it's still very enjoyable movie and it's it's well done as well so yeah i was saying 7.5 and i'm saying rent summer of 84 because it's a it's a good pick Okay, and at this point in episode 154 of Horror Movie Podcast, I'm inserting a little post-production solo cast recording that I did several days after we recorded the episode that you've been listening to. So I'm just going to slip this in before the end because it is my feature review of Shane Black's The Predator from 2018. Do you know what my job description is? I'm in acquisitions. I look up, and I catch what falls out of the sky. What's on the ship? First things first, so we haven't done a Predator or Alien vs. Predator franchise review on Horror Movie Podcast, at least not yet. But over on Movie Podcast Weekly... We just recently revisited all of those movies over the span of uh, three episodes, and I can link those in the show notes for you if you're interested in hearing those reviews. And um, I should say, we approach that from the Movie Podcast Weekly type of perspective rather than the HMP approach. So, (laughs) But just to give you a nutshell overview of where I'm coming from on these movies, so The original Predator from 1987, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, that's a 10 out of 10 for me. It's a buy. It's a must-see. I love that film. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, and it is one of the films responsible for making me into the cinephile that I am. So, yeah, that's a 10 out of 10. And then Predator 2, which came out in 1990, it it has a lot of problems, but... You know, I I still can enjoy it. I mean, especially after it gets it gets going, it's better. But it's like a six point five or so. It's a rental. You know, it's a it's a one time watch at least. Even though it is a disappointing follow up. And then you've got Predators from twenty ten. I gave that a seven out of ten. I called it a rental, and I and I say that because um, it's pretty out there. It's 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 almost like screenwriters having fun on that. I mean, that's what's fun about it. 
it's very unique and unusual and you know some of it is a, a little bit cheesy I, I still feel like you have some you have an opportunity where the screenplay can really kind of stretch its legs so to speak and they could go places with that movie that you, you might not dare to go a lot of times we try to be a little more conservative you know I think in movies because you don't want to go too far uh, but this is um, Alex Litvek and Michael Finch. I think their screenplay of Predators is really fun. And um, I, I read an article about it one time. And I, I should, if I could track that down quickly, I would look it up and, and read some notes to you from it. Uh, I'll try to find it at some point. If we ever cover these movies on Horror Movie Podcast in depth, I'll make sure I have it then. But I did read an article from the screenwriters and... Um, they were trying to be creative and get outside the box. And I think they succeeded with that. So, I mean, Predators from 2010, not a perfect movie, but still pretty cool. And that one actually follows. I mean, it comes later than these Alien versus Predator movies, but I put them, I put them together just because of what they are. So Alien versus Predator from 2004, <clears throat> that's like a seven as well. I mean, it's fun. I, I think there's there's stuff to enjoy in it as well. I mean, none of these movies have, have kept up with the first original predator. And honestly, I've always wondered if a big part of that is not having Schwarzenegger in it, but even so, I mean, they get a little more toward the, the campy side of things and that's okay. I mean, I, I do enjoy alien versus predator. I think it's worth a one time watch. And then Alien vs. Predator Requiem. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, and I've called this jokingly. Alien vs. Predator Train Requiem uh, from 2007. This this thing sucks. And, and I'm sorry to say that because, honestly, I love the premise of it. Um, what's really interesting is the, the Day of the Dead film, and I'm not talking about Romero's Day of the Dead, there was a Day of the Dead film from 2008 that was a Steve Miner directed film. And it's not a good, very good Day of the Dead film. But it's about this small Colorado town that's overrun by zombies. And honestly, more or less, it, the, the storyline to this Alien vs. Predator Requiem is very much the same. It's kind of like a small Colorado town. It, it's cool in the parallels. But neither film is great, and that's really a problem because, uh, honestly, I love that kind of premise. And that's something I appreciate about this new movie. It kind of incorporates that, you know, small town, you know, being um, infiltrated or affected. Um, the new movie kind of um, picks up on that a little bit, and so that's something I like. But anyways, the Alien vs. Predator Requiem movie from 2007, that's a 4 out of 10 for me. I call it an avoid. And so here we are for this new film. It was just released this past weekend, September 14th. It's called The Predator. And the film seems to fall in sequentially after Predator 1 and 2. It also has a bit of influence from Predators. So I think you could argue that that was taken into account for sure. Um, but I get the sense that with this new one, the AVP movies, at least for now, are ignored. And and maybe in subsequent films, they might bring that back into the mix again. 
And I will be honest, I was starting to get a little bit worried. Like the first trailer was decent and I was excited about that. But then as they released the later trailers, I was starting to get a little nervous. But Wolfman Josh and many others were still hopeful due to the direction of Shane Black, who directed and co-wrote this new movie. And yes, we should not underestimate Shane Black ever. Because for those who might not be familiar with why he's such such an intriguing wild card, Shane Black is often considered to be among one of the pioneering screenwriters of the action genre. His writing credits are like uh, Lethal Weapon, The Monster Squad, The Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, that's an excellent film, not horror, but a must-see, Iron Man 3, and The Nice Guys. And he was a co-writer um, on this movie, The Predator, of course. And Shane Black directed a lot of those I just said, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, <laughs> The Nice Guys. And so he tends to make the kind of movies that we geeks love. That's for sure. Fred Decker was the other co-writer of The Predator. And he's notable, of course, because he was the writer-director of Night of the Creeps, The Monster Squad, and RoboCop 3. And uh, real quick, I'm just going to throw in at this point the premise here. I often forget to do this. So um, I did not go with Internet Movie Database's premise because I think it's pretty terrible, (laughs) the one that's up there right now. And um, I want to be really careful and very vague about this because I think if you were very sensitive to spoilers or you really wanted to have a lot of surprises, um, you know, I think people should be careful in describing this film. So here's, I will give you a very generic spoiler-free premise, and it is, after a sniper witnesses a predator ship go down, he becomes caught in the crosshairs of the alien hunter and the government that's trying to suppress information about the lethal visitor. Okay, so that's my premise for this. And it's uh, set on Earth. Now, I'm starting to come to terms with the fact that any subsequent Predator sequels just aren't going to match the same tone and the relative realism that you get from the first Predator. I mean, that's my favorite, obviously. And maybe that's unavoidable because one of the reasons that the first Predator film is so effective is because the monster is mysterious. We don't understand it. We don't know its rules or any of its lore. It's truly alien to us. And I mean that in the literal sense and in a figurative sense. We just, we have no clue what this thing is that they're up against. And that first film introduces us to the Predator's um, impressive hunting tech. And it has one of the great unmasking reveals in all of cinema when we first see the creature's face. That's amazing. And that and that kind of surprise is just something you simply don't have in these later films. That is, if these are not the first Predator you've seen. If, if most people are like me, I assume, and the first one you've seen is the Schwarzenegger version, then, yeah, the, the unmasking is doesn't have quite the same punch. But all the subsequent sequels have spent time filling out this backstory and the lore of these aliens. And maybe that's why the franchise has come to feel a little more artificial to me. It's kind of tough to articulate what I mean, but it seems like the more they've explained away the monster and what the monster's about and the motivations, then the less uh, scary it becomes. And I will say, I, I don't feel like this new film is particularly scary in any way, but it is entertaining. Um, 
And just to give you an example of this, what I'm talking about is like in the opening spaceship sequence when this when the ship comes to Earth in the original film, um, it's pretty simple. And that's probably due to their budget restrictions at the time. They probably didn't have a huge budget for that. Uh, but in this new film, The Predator, when the, the ship comes to Earth, it's very, you know, effects heavy. It's rich in color and detail. And it's not that this is a bad thing, but I mean, we see the, the Predator creature almost immediately and all the colorful gadgets in the ship. And it just feels a little bit artificial or something. And again, you know, it, it's not that it's bad, but it, it's funny because it feels like um, not a parody, but almost like an imitation of a sci-fi film. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to say. Like, for example, if you're familiar with um, X-Men The Last Stand, there's like the usual X-Men fighting action. But then in the beginning of the film, there's like this um, training sequence where they have um, Wolverine and and Storm and some of the younger people like Colossus. They're fighting in this sequence and it looks very like chintzy. <laughs> like it doesn't look real at all. It's not as good as the other action in the film and then you see that it is merely a, a simulation and then you feel better about that and that's kind of what like the opening sequence of this feels like not that it looks bad but it, it has that imitation look anyways I will say though to this new film's credit for the first time in the franchise this new movie has taken the lore and the background that I've been talking about and carried it farther but in an intriguing and interesting way. I really like the things that we learn about this alien species in this movie and what the motivation is and what they're trying to do. That's very cool. So uh, props to uh, Shane Black and Fred Decker for that. And, you know, the first thing I would like to just make sure that you know going into this after spending 15 minutes already is that this is a, a fun and funny action horror alien movie. I think if you go into it expecting the right tone, like if you anticipate the tone of this and you're not looking for the tone of the 1987 movie, then I think you're really going to enjoy your experience. And I'll admit right up front that this movie makes a lot of leaps in its storytelling. I mean, there, you know, if you were to connect the dots to some of these things, it's just... It doesn't make sense or they take some serious liberties, but there are a lot of moments where I just get the feeling that the screenwriters are saying to the audience, come on, people, it's only a monster movie. Just loosen up, have fun and enjoy yourself. You know, I mean, it's escapism and that's what this is. So we can't be too snobby about this film or we won't enjoy it. And and really the way I summed it up on Twitter, I feel like really captures it. I, I wrote unapologetic and shameless the epitome of a guilty pleasure for predator fans gets progressively dumber until it ends but i still kind of love hated it and uh, like i love alien resurrection or even transformers revenge of the fallen and it's pretty funny and so i was proud of that tweet because i think for anybody that knows my sensibilities i think you'll have a very accurate sense of what to expect when you go into this movie now, it is very violent. It has some great gore scenes, and so I had a lot of fun with that. And it is hilarious sometimes. I will say there are a lot of irreverent or 
inappropriate type of jokes. For instance, it's got a lot of non-PC jokes at the um, mental health community's expense. And you, you kind of feel bad for laughing at that stuff, of course, you know, because it's, you know, it's distasteful to be sure. But, you know, we're talking about Shane Black here and uh, that's kind of how he rolls sometimes. But and plus you've got a cast like Keegan Michael Key. I mean that guy can that guy could sell a joke, right? And you got him riffing with Thomas Jane, Trevante Rhodes, Olivia Munn. You got a young Jacob Tremblay in this, and you know for the most part, I mean I think they know what kind of movie they're in, obviously, and so I think they work fairly well together. They hit on all cylinders, and when you got Shane Black and Fred Decker's banter, it's it turns out pretty funny. Now, um, I will say that Boyd Holbrook, he plays our uh, lead hero, protagonist, and he's okay. For whatever reason, he just doesn't stand out very well to me. He's kind of like Charlie Hunnam. (laughs) He's just not overly memorable. Not that he does a bad job, but I don't know. There's something missing there for me. And then for those who are fans of This Is Us, that uh, sappy (laughs) TV series, on NBC. Yes, I do watch that with my wife. And um, yes, it is a tearjerker. But I just want to say that if you're familiar with that show, then Sterling K. Brown from that show, he's Randall in that in that one. He, he plays the villainous government official. And it, he's playing drastically against type for him. And, and that was kind of fun to see him kind of, you know, twirling the mustache, so to speak. But in short... I love this big, dumb, summer action horror B-movie, and I love it despite myself. It's a lot of fun, and I could see this becoming a cult hit pretty quickly. I mean, I think it'll really find its, hit its stride, you know, once it hits, uh, you know, VOD and Blu-ray and DVD and so forth. And I know that a lot of people don't believe in guilty pleasures, but... For someone like me, I consider myself right in the middle between a schlock fan and a film snob. Like, I I consider myself absolutely middle of the road. I feel like this skews a little toward the guilty pleasure side. But I'd say it's definitely worth seeing in the theater. So, um, you know, taking into account my rating of the previous films for this one, I'm coming in at a 7.5 out of 10. I say see it in the theater. And I'm calling it a buy it because I think it's fun enough that you're going to revisit it many times. So it's a 7.5 out of 10. And I say see The Predator from 2018 in the theater and buy it. Okay, and then I'll cut back into our initial recording so we can take this show home. All right then. So as we start to wind down the show and wrap up, uh, Josh, we, we're moving into our PSA, and uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to slip one in on you before before I hear yours. HBO has a, a TV miniseries right now called Sharp Objects. Have you guys checked out any of this yet? No. no. I've heard good things, though. Oh, yeah. So, I love, and I mean, I freaking love, you know, Southern Gothic type of... <laughs> Like, like, let me see. Like, what are some good examples of that? Um, what's that one? Like Winter's Bone type stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I love that kind of thing because, you know, out I'm, of the yeah, out of the furnace, yeah. Because I'm, 
I'm from West Virginia, and I, I've seen some of that. Blue that, ruin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> blue ruin, especially. Yeah, that's that's one of my all time favorites. So so this sharp objects, um, I I wouldn't call it horror, but it is definitely a very dark, bleak crime series. It's a TV miniseries. It has eight episodes. They're an hour long, so it's an eight-hour investment. It stars Amy Adams, and um, oh my goodness, let me just tell you just a couple of quick things about this because I do think it's it's definitely horror adjacent. I think this is something that would interest horror fans because it is it, it deeply disturbing. At least at least for me, it was. Um, I do you remember? Do you guys remember True Detective season one? Yeah, yeah. So uh -huh. I I would peg it. It's like in that that kind of tone and that bleak, somber heaviness. So basically, Amy Adams is a very she's kind of a, a troubled journalist, and she's living in the big city. She she lives in St. Louis, and she gets sent home on assignment to her hometown. Um, which is this place that's, it seems like a kind of a nasty little place where like there's a lot of t town gossip and there's not much to do. And you know, the, the people are just backbiter. I mean, it, it seems like a pretty toxic environment and she gets sent back to her hometown because there are some serial murders happening to young girls. And, um, so we have the Amy Adams character kind of wrestling with her own demons and especially wrestling with the conflicts like with her her family back home and and her reputation in this town and her trying to be this reporter. And, and Josh, since you're you know, I, I know you like crime mysteries. This is definitely, you know, she's a reporter and there's an FBI guy who's in town and they're trying to figure out who is doing these heinous awful um, killings of these young girls. And, and, and we see some imagery in this that's really disturbing. Like there's one thing that's just really stayed with me. And, and so, um, you know, and, and, and so it, like it gets to the point where it's like, it's not quite the level of seven, David Fincher seven, but like you're, you're left with some imagery that, you, that will stick with you. And long story short, by the time it was over, like I was starting to get impatient because it, I feel like it's eight hours, it's eight episodes, and it could it could have been probably done in four, <laughs> honestly, because it, it, it is, they, they do take their time, and they do get a little, like, whimsical sometimes, and I'm like, come on, let's just stick with it, and, but by the time this thing ends, when, by the time episode eight is over, it, there is some true life horror. Like I'm not saying it's based on a true story, but I'm saying there are, there are things that are brought up in this film that exist in the world that I was not aware of. And, and I was, and I was so troubled by this that I, I like sat down with my wife and had a big long talk, you know, to kind of talk out my feelings. <laughs> so, so everybody, I, I think the horror fans out there, if you're patient enough, and we've established that I'm not always patient, uh, but I think you should give Sharp Objects a whirl because it is definitely horror adjacent. It is a dark crime, Southern Gothic mystery, and it's worth your time. So did I sell you guys or not? 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and they're like, eh, maybe. Uh, for me, the whole series, I'll give it like an 8.5 out of 10. And I, I think you should stream it. You can you can watch it. It looks like it's on Amazon Prime. And it's also on HBO Go. So there you go. And, and Josh, I believe you had a PSA as well. Yeah, I want to tell people about a Netflix original film, at least in the United States, called How It Ends. Um, it's directed by David and Rosenthal, written by Brooks McLaren. And um, it's an it's an interesting film, you know. It's it's an apocalyptic film, so you've got your post apocalyptic films that are like where the world has ended and uh, we're seeing the aftermath much later. So let's say a film like Snowpiercer or the Mad Max films, where it's clearly post apocalyptic, clearly um, a new society has formed. And then you've got your apocalyptic films, like let's say Dawn of the Dead, where things are falling apart, right? We, we see it from the outset as the world starts to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we have here. This is a movie where we see the incident happen, and there's a young man in the film who is played by Theo James, and he is with his father-in-law who hates him played by Forrest Whitaker and something happens to his girlfriend slash Forrest Whitaker's daughter on the other side of the country. And so they decide they're going to leave together in the car and try to get to where, um, you know, his girlfriend is where his daughter is um, and figure, you know, make sure she's okay. And as they drive cross country, things start devolving society starts coming apart, you know, and they're only on the road for like four days, but things go bad pretty quickly, you know, and um, it's an interesting movie. I mean, you know, we talked about this a lot last year with, was it, it comes at night. We talked about it. with. Mm -hmm. I believe so. I think you have, there's a little bit of a burnout because of the walking dead. We've seen post-apocalyptic world so frequently that like, he really has to do something special to wow me nowadays. But you know, I still like zombie movies and I still like post-apocalyptic settings. It's still one of my favorite types of worlds. And so I think it's always interesting to see how people react differently in these types of situations. And I, I wouldn't call this one a horror film. Um, you know, it's it's a drama that takes place in this apocalyptic setting. There are thrilling moments. There are scary moments as society crumbles and people turn on each other. And it's all of the stuff that's in a zombie movie minus the zombies and gore, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's what you have. You have an event, as they say, in the happening. There's an event that is happening. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's not as dumb as as, you know, the wind is after us. But, um, <laughs> but you know, there's, it's just about these characters really, you know, coming to terms with each other and trying to navigate their way across the country. So it's, it's kind of a fun, kind of a fun thing. If I had to compare it to one movie, the one that reminded me most of is goodbye world. I don't know if you saw that. You guys mm-hmm. saw that? Sure did. Yeah. A few years ago with Adrian Grenier. I like, that. I would say like tonally and quality wise, that's probably what it most reminds me of. Excellent. Okay. But I, you know, I really enjoy as we're, you know, it took me a while. He was an acquired taste for me. 
but I really enjoy Forrest Whitaker. I think he's some, someone who always brings a lot of charisma, totally. however weird that charisma is to, to bear. I'm right. It, it's, as long as it's not Vantage Point. Remember that movie? <laughs> oh man, I hate that movie. That very good. So bad, but, but I like I like him, and I think he he usually adds a lot, and he he brings it here. the The young lead is okay. He's kind of like a you know hot dude, so you know he just kind of like he doesn't really stand out to me. He's a little bit generic, like male model kind of yeah vibe for me. But he's he's fine. He's not he's not bad. He does a good job. There's a young Native American actress who they encounter along the way who I think is really interesting. Is it Grace Dove? Grace Dove. It may well be. Sorry. I remember. And Carrie Bechet is in this, who I really love. She has kind of a small role, but she's awesome. Always. From uh, Red State fame, I guess, for horror fans. Oh, yeah. She's in a lot of Edward Burns movies. That's where I know her from, mostly. But horror okay. fans might recognize her. Anyway, she's in it and she's good. But um, yeah, it's a good film, and I would recommend it. Not a horror movie. Okay, great. Yeah, I've been so curious about that one, so I'm I'm glad you talked about it because I've been wondering what what are we in for here. But yeah, I liked Goodbye World. That was my kind of like a more low key version of The Road or like The Book of Eli without the action and sci fi stuff. (laughs) Right. Okay. Cool. All right, there you have it then. I think that just about wraps up episode 154 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank everybody for sticking with us. Guys, I had a really fun time on this episode tonight. Thanks for letting me um, exercise my demons about film criticism and being critical and, and so forth. It was This is one of the most fun episodes I've had in a long time. So thank you for, for uh, talking about these movies with me. Cool. Yeah, it was fun. So, David, uh, where can the listeners catch up with you and find more of your work on the Internet? All right. Well, first, I want to say that I do still have some uh, a pretty big collection of DVDs that are still available. Um, and I want to give the listeners one last crack at them because I do have a few other avenues I'm going to use to start selling the rest of them. Um, I have a few uh, actually local uh, websites I can post them on. Um, but uh, if you could go over to Letterboxd, and there is a link in, I guess it'll be in the show notes uh, to check those out. There's still quite a few. I've sold quite a few, but there's still quite a few available. Mm-hmm. Um, and Josh, I have to get you that information as well because there's a few more. Um, I'll get you that list uh, probably in the next couple days. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, also, obviously, dvdinfatuation.com, at uh, uh, DVD Infatuation on Twitter. Uh, I have a, a Facebook page, uh, and is it Instagram? I have Instagram. I don't think I'm ever really on there, to be honest with you. <laughs> and other podcasts. I'm on the Universal Monsters cast, uh, the We Deal in Lead podcast, the Western podcast, and uh, with Greg Amortis, Haddonfield Hatchet, and Jesse Robbins on... And Dr. Dirty, um, one of uh, Greg Amortis' uh, uh, I guess his initial co-host from his um, uh, the old Creepture Feature show. Mm, back in the day. Uh, and that is the Land of the Creeps. Nice. Yeah. Good people over there. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you, Dave. And then, uh, I hope people will check out Movie Podcast Weekly, the clown car of movie podcasting. Pretty silly. Um, 
Wolfman Josh, before you give your plugs, if you don't mind, will you do a little teasing of what we come we have coming up here real soon on Horror Movie Podcast? Yeah. Maybe I could do my plugs first, and then they'll have to wait around and listen to my plugs. Oh, yeah. That, what's that, coming up. That's even better. Yeah. Very smart. Okay, do that. <laughs> the, the main things I would ask people to check out... Um, would be to financially support us so we can quit our jobs. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> we have a couple of avenues how you can support the show financially if you so choose. But guess what? You get something out of it. So there's movie, there's patreon.com slash movie podcast network where you can become a patron. Each month there's an additional episode, a special features episode. Sometimes there's also additional bonus episodes. Sometimes those are really awesome. Sometimes they're okay. But there to uh, help us out. And I know Jay, as well as Kill Bill Kill, just recently did one non-horror, but uh, a big special features episode there, three hours long, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. So check that out. Another way you can support us, um, if you like, and get something out of it would be to go to teespring.com slash horror movie cast, where we've got some t-shirts designed uh, by our listeners for our listeners which are a lot of fun. There's three different designs on there. You can check out. There's t-shirts, hoodies, uh, ladies and men's sweatshirts, coffee mugs, uh, hot cocoa mugs. Um, You can check those out as well. And you can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram. Also on Facebook at Icarus Arts, which is the name of my film production company. I'd love to get in touch with you. Oh, also on Letterboxd as well. So, um, yeah, get in touch. I'm most active on Twitter, but I try to use all of the, those that I've mentioned occasionally. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And, and, and Josh. Then, yeah, this Halloween season, mm-hmm. um, you know, look, we get a lot of requests of stuff to cover. And um, I know Allison with an I has requested the Saw franchise. <laughs> and I've been personally needed a little break from pig headed horror. So. <laughs> But I think obviously we're going to get around to Saw eventually. I feel like we've focused on the biggest horror franchises so far. And um, with Halloween, Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street, Child's Play, Phantasm, Pumpkinhead. uh, You know, I think we've hit a lot of the big ones. If people haven't heard those, if you're a new listener, go to horrormoviepodcast.com. Check out the sidebar. You can find links to a lot of our special features episodes where we do... Um, in-depth discussions of horror themes and franchises. Hours and hours and hours. Hours and hours of good stuff. Great content. Um, (laughs) But every October, we try to do a deep dive into a franchise. This year, we're doing something a little bit different. We did crossover kind of mini franchise reviews in the past. I mentioned Pumpkinhead and Phantasm. And we're kind of going to go that route again this October, rather than do one franchise for the whole month, we're going to break it up a little bit. So one that people have really been requesting for a long time is the Hellraiser franchise. Oh, and yeah. Because of the recent release of The Littlest Reich, we're also going to take on the Puppet Master franchise. <laughs> and because of the 40th anniversary of Halloween and the 30th anniversary of Halloween Part 4, we are going to do some special and the release, I should say, also of the new Blumhouse 
a Halloween movie directed oh, by yeah. David Gordon Green, we are going to do a, a Halloween special for the end of the month of October. So coming up, what you have is two episodes that will cover the Puppet Master franchise. <laughs> and we'll bring on some super fans of Puppet Master to kind of get us through those middle films. And we'll do a deep dive <laughs> into the original and the Littlest Reich and, and definitely touch on the others. Then we're going to also do another two episodes of the Hellraiser films and give uh, some proper treatment to the standout films of that uh, franchise. But then, you know, kind of skip over a little bit some of the some of the lesser films with, again, a super fans of that franchise. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to round out October with the Halloween coverage and the release of the new Blumhouse film, as well as the 40th anniversary. Nice. Nice. See, so that, that sounds, that's a full schedule. That's going to be fun. Yeah. We're going to have also a good time. We do our 31 days of Halloween where we post written reviews now in the past we've depended greatly on dave because dave was doing his 2500 movie challenge where he was watching and reviewing a film each day Mm -hmm. um we're not going to have dave to rely on as much this year (laughs) no if yeah because i'm sort of taking a break until january 1 as far as writing so yeah so right you know we're going to try to do our best jay and i but in the past (laughs) we have enlisted listeners to help us um know Sal Roma has done some writing for us. Red Cap yep. Jack has done some writing for us. Ian West. If you're a listener who would like to contribute reviews to our 31 days of Halloween, uh, let us know. And we will we'll do a written review post on the website each day of the month of October. And I'm going to be doing a special features bonus episode for our patrons about the kind of horror fans approach to the 31 days of Halloween. Nice. We'll be talking to several of our listeners about what they're doing for the month of October, what movies they're going to be watching, as well as talking to a listener who's written a really cool book about Halloween movies. Oh, that's amazing. And when's that come out, Josh? Do you know? Um, I'm hoping to record all of that during the month of September so that we can release it. Um, near the beginning of October to kind of amp everybody up for the 31 days of Halloween. But we'll see. I'm not, I'm not exactly positive when we'll be able to speak. Okay. I can't wait to hear that. That sounds like a great, yeah. great episode. Thank you. Yeah, That's definitely. cool. That's very cool. Okay, listeners. Well, I hope you can tell um, we, we love this community. We're grateful for you as uh, listeners of horror movie podcast. You've been very supportive you're welcome to leave comments in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. Um, hit us up on Twitter at horrormoviecast. And we also have a voicemail, 801-382-8789. We have our back catalog of um, episodes from the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis at our website at horrormoviepodcast.com. And of course, at that same site, you can find all of our episodes, all 154 of them, you know, because iTunes only goes back so far. So you go to horrormoviepodcast.com to find those. Um, you're welcome to subscribe free on iTunes. That way, every time we drop an episode, you'll you'll get it. And um, follow us on Twitter at horrormoviecast. We want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our podcast theme song. And you can find Fred's music at frederickingram.com. 
And we want to thank Kagan Breitenbach for his classic reworking of Fred's original theme. Well done, Kagan. Kagan's work is at kaganbreitenbach.com, and they're always linked in the show notes, so you can check them out. But I think that's it, guys. So um, we thank everybody for listening, and join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. 